Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Avengers Endgame. If you find this recording, don't feel bad about this. Part of the journey is the end. Just for the record, being adrift in space with zero promise of rescue is more fun than it sounds. Food and water ran out four days ago. Oxygen will run out tomorrow morning. That'll be it. When I drift off, I will dream about you. Thanos did exactly what he said he was going to do. He wiped out 50% of all living creatures. We lost, all of us. We lost friends, we lost family. We lost a part of ourselves. This is the fight of our lives. This is gonna work, Steve. I know it is. Because I don't know what I'm gonna do if it doesn't. We come to it at last, the aftermath of the great battle of our time. A battle, indeed a war, that the Avengers lost in maybe the worst possible way. Half the universe was the casualty, and for the survivors, there was nothing to do except carry on living. Now this episode is just going to be Sharon and I. It's an enormous and intimidating film for us to take on alone, but we have to try. Wait, what's this? On our left, these... These orange portals are opening and all of our friends are stepping through. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in fact now having the biggest guest list we have ever assembled on a single recording of our show. Ten voices, count them, to bring you thoughts and insight on Endgame. With us for this insanely epic final showdown, we have guests who have been on our previous 21 Marvel podcasts. From The Captain Marvel Show, it's Mackenzie Easton. Uh, I could do this all day. Also from Captain Marvel, as well as Ant-Man and the Wasp, Black Panther, Thor Ragnarok, it's Debbie Morse. She's not alone. Debbie's other half, Karu Nagisa, was on those latter three shows with her. As far as I'm concerned, that's America's ass. Were you saluting there? I was indeed, yes. You're damn well better, son. (laughs) Just like Debbie, Brendan Agnew has been on four shows, including Thor Ragnarok, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Black Panther, and Infinity War. That is America's ass. Beginning back with our Phase 1 shows in 2012, Neil Taylor has been on 11 episodes, including Iron Man 1, 2, and 3, Captain America 1 and 2, Thor 1 and 3, The Incredible Hulk, The Avengers, Doctor Strange, and Spider-Man Homecoming. I am Iron Man. With 14 appearances from Thor The Dark World all the way through to Captain Marvel, it's my wife and co-host, Sharon Shaw. Hey, Peter Parker, you got something for me? 
Jerome McIntosh was also with us from the beginning, and he was on the Iron Man 1, 2, and 3 shows, Thor 1, 2, and 3, Captain America 1, 2, and 3, Incredible Hulk, Avengers 1 and 2, Guardians 1 and 2, Spider-Man Homecoming, Black Panther, making a grand total of 16 shows, our reigning champion, Jerome McIntosh. That's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. Nice. And in his first ever appearance on a Marvel show, our newest recruit, Jesse Ferguson, teasing his future appearances in Phase 4. Has anybody seen an ugly brown van? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And finally, from our Captain Marvel show, but also somehow an actress in the actual movie Avengers Endgame, it's Maya Santandrea who beats all of us with her magic. Assemble. Ah, nice. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> now that makes this the most guest-filled single-session podcast we've ever recorded, and it's going to prove a supreme challenge to stay focused. So, Sharon had a brainwave, which is that we should ask each of our guests to pick three characters from Endgame to talk about. That way, every character is served at the very least once, and every person gets to talk about someone three times. It makes much more sense, especially given the context of our show, to do it this way rather than going moment to moment or act by act, because this isn't just a film in its own right. It's a culmination of over a dozen story arcs for various beloved characters, some spanning 11 years of continuity. It is often complained about that the 2003 fantasy epic Return of the King has too many endings, but as Jackson and co. will attest, they are drawing to a close not one film, but three and that level of goodbye requires time to process on screen. Endgame draws 21 films to a close and gears us up to start afresh. It does so in a way that was hard to imagine them ever pulling off. For me, riven with doubt, especially since the baleful close of Infinity War, and unwilling to say goodbye to these heroes, I have reached a measure of maturity following the stories of... I did not expect for this film to cover every base. It would have been a ludicrous demand. And yet it managed exactly that for me. And while it's not the technical best Marvel, that accolade probably belongs to Black Panther or The Winter Soldier for, if nothing else, being a splendid film in their own right that any old chump could wander in off the street and see without any prior continuity, and they would be completely on board. But it's continuity-riddled opposite Endgame, love letter to fans and overall premise, though it may feel like, has perhaps replaced Civil War as maybe my favourite of the series. Civil War initially beat Avengers and Winter Soldier by virtue of its astonishing juggling act of a dozen characters, all with a stake in the prevailing events, and a central conflict between two characters that I adore, both of whom remain entirely consistent even as they clash. But it always left me feeling mournful, and while Endgame has that in spades too, it adds more to the mix, including satisfaction, bittersweet farewells, and a sense of true completion. So we will go character by character, voice by voice now. And we're going to start with the man who has been here since the beginning, the Rosetta Stone from which the MCU sprang, Tony Stark. Superman as played by Christopher Reeve, was without a doubt a landmark for cinema and for comic book movies, but the Salkins couldn't quite even manage one great film from him. The casting was perfect, the director was great, and John Williams' score is immortal, but the film loses its way, especially by contemporary standards. And then we had the law of diminishing returns of bad sequels. You could claim, and many have, that without him there would be no superhero movies, but with him there were no other superhero movies for over a decade. 
then Tim Burton's Batman came along, and I still hear people saying this is their favourite comic book hero movie of all time, and that baffles me. But whatever your feelings are on these two films, it's hard to argue that Keaton's Bruce Wayne did his most personal growth when he was in fact played by Val Kilmer six years later in one of the three increasingly shoddier sequels. And once again, no other heroes emerge. The argument that you have no superhero films without them has a big green question mark next to it, because producers at the time were greenlighting other Golden Age shit shows from the 1930s like Dick Tracy, The Shadow, The Phantom. Then came Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, and this set the template for the early 2000s superhero blockbuster, assisted by the underwhelming but acceptable at the time X-Men films. Now those first two Spider-Men are still great to watch, but culturally speaking, all this creepy old baby man played by Tobey Maguire managed to initiate were a slew of also-rans like Ang Lee's Hulk and Affleck's Daredevil and the less-than-fantastic four. Good casting for Johnny Storm, though. All that changed... With Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark, he set the tone for the MCU, delivering a deeply flawed, deeply entertaining, immature man and a measure of genuine cool that had been absent from every superhero before him, possibly except for Blade. But Tony Stark was given room to grow. He was given a story, a path, something to be better than. And he was given it by a team who understood what made the character strong over decades' worth of comics, but somehow... With this measure of focus, with this casting, the on-screen presence was the best version of that character so far. This was a trend that continued. You can definitively say that without this inspired, risky casting, we would not have had the Age of Heroes. Because it's not enough for a movie to be successful on its own. To really change things, other heroes have to step up. From Stark arose Widow, then Thor, then Barton, then Rogers, then the Guardians, then Ant-Man, Strange, a new Spidey, our first ever Panther, our first ever Carol, and from the MCU, after a few blunders with letting an objectivist redefine their classic characters, DC, Mustard, a Diana, an Arthur, a Billy, and more are on the way, and that is because of Tony. I'm not saying that the world is enjoying its longest period of uninterrupted peace in years because of me. I'm not saying that from the ashes of captivity never has a greater phoenix metaphor been personified in human history. But the man himself has gone on an extraordinary and unprecedented screen journey. We have literally never seen a character grow so far beyond their original selves over such time and installments. Stallone's Rocky comes close, though he is still, by Creed II, the same sweet, well-meaning man we met in 1976. Radcliffe's Harry Potter and his companions have also undergone a decade of growth and experiences in their own exceptional, never-to-be-repeated series of eight films. James Bond has been going since 1962 in over 24 movies and he's barely advanced beyond the smooth, womanising, smug, alcoholic turd from 50 years ago, principally because his audience doesn't want him to. And when he starts to soften, they push him back to hardness. Tony started out in 2008 an irresponsible billionaire playboy who only cared about himself. By the end of his first movie, he had taken on a new mission to make amends for his lack of accountability and to be both shield and sword for the world. Then in Iron Man 2, he has to reconcile with the ghost of his father in order to think his way out of a situation whereby he has unwittingly poisoned himself. 
In Avengers, Stark is confronted with Thor and Steve, two men he mocks whilst being intimidated by their forthright nobility, and Hulk and Banner, a dichotomy of power and brains that intrigues him, and he is traumatised by an overwhelming near-death experience, leaving him desperately overcompensating in Iron Man 3, making suit after suit, a habit he makes play of giving up on whilst creating Ultron to keep Thanos at bay. Again, as with the palladium poisoning, Tony's every effort to outthink and outpace the threats he faces result in his creating more dire threats. In Civil War, after Ultron has spiked his guilt, he tries far too hard to do something about that. Leaning into the Sokovia Accords without questioning them, his unresolved guilt over how things were left with both of his parents going into a storm of pain as he discovers not only that Steve's friend did it, not only that Steve knew, and hid that fact. But that this is the guy that Steve is refusing to, in Tony's eyes, take responsibility for the world over his own personal interests. That conflict ends in tragedy and regret, and in response, Tony takes on the role of surrogate father-slash-mentor to young Peter Parker, the vision of a son he would ideally like to send out into the world to carry on doing good. Wary of his past mistakes, Tony tries not to interfere with Peter's life, but keeps ostentatiously handing him new gadgets that can deal out even more mayhem, until he decides the best course of action is to permanently ground the boy for his own safety, only to have Peter prove his independence. Against his judgement and attempts to corral the boy, Tony and Peter stand side by side against Thanos and attempt to avert absolute disaster, and they absolutely fail. Tony has put so much of himself into trying to protect the world in the grander sense and in the more personal sense, and both are mutilated and destroyed before his eyes. So when we meet him in Endgame, Tony has lived more of a life on screen and gone through more changes than many of us can ever claim to have in our own real lives. And Downey plays him scared and crushed and trying to be accepting, and then after he is saved and has no survival to attend to back on Earth, he implodes in a heart-wrenching breakdown. This was Tony Stark's last ride, and it is so far from the end of Iron Man 3, the conventional close of any hero's story, yet weirdly mirrors the intent there. What Endgame has that Iron Man 3 lacks is that period of rest and recuperation and rebirth that Tony goes through on the sad earth post snap he gets to have a life and the family he always dreamed of happiness with pepper and morgan in a place of peace and natural beauty with minimal tech and seemingly no people to disrupt things most heroes don't get to have a happy ending and die bravely fighting the most important fight of all history but somehow this was managed by the russo brothers and marvel writers since the first avenger christopher marcus and stephen mcfeely Downey's Tony Stark made nine major appearances, way beyond his initial contracted six, and the world is richer for it. He just about beats Hugh Jackman as Logan, and notably his final moments echo that masterpiece of a final Wolverine film. Both men give their lives, taking out the embodiment of their darker selves. In Logan's case, a savage living weapon with no heart. In Stark's case, a charismatic and powerful man so arrogant that he keeps insisting on remaking the world, even when it is proved that his meddling only makes things worse. Both Logan and Stark leave behind a brilliant daughter now freed because of this sacrifice and a world with hope for the future that can only heal with this imbalance addressed. Tony, in his final days, managed to reconcile with his wife, his daughter, his closest friends, his surrogate son, 
and somehow even had the time for a meet and greet with his own father, dead for 30 years, to sweep away the last remnants of resentment for that man and meet his own end completely clear and ready. Yet still with so much to live for. It was a dearly paid price and there will be times in my life, much like the last two weeks when I just stop what I'm doing and reflect on how Tony Stark lived and how he died, surrounded by those who loved and respected him. And then there's Thanos. Nobody else picked this guy, and I'm a little surprised, but gratified, because we actually don't need to talk about him all that much, and he can be a footnote on this whole endeavour, because... Last year, when I lamented the sheer volume of Thanos was right content on YouTube, intent as some of those internet boys are on misreading media, I thought Marvel were being irresponsible, not making it abundantly clear as soon as possible that he was, in fact, deeply, deeply wrong. But people haven't been talking about him recently because Thanos is only interesting when he wins. And I think even he knows that. He harps on about how wrong existence is, like John Doe in Seven, jawboning about his work, his quest, and how it will change people. And in this film, he finds out that it doesn't change people, at least not for the better in his eyes. And then he shows himself to be a phenomenally poor loser, deciding that if his first theory proved unfounded, that he would smash the whole of existence up, etch-a-sketch the world, and create a new one where everyone says he's awesome. It is a pathetic response delivered just after he disparages the arrogance of the Avengers. It outlines how this was all about him, all along. And when he loses this time, his work very much undone, he simply sulks and turns to dust. Defeated. Physically, ideologically, utterly. He has nothing to say, and crucially, nobody is there to mourn him. Thanos is a dick. And I don't want to see him again for a long, long time. A great character, but one that it's a very important we always mention in the same breath as an expression of his sheer wrongness. And finally for me, Steve Rogers. Marvel's Superman. I could say he's been on a character arc as rich as Tony through his seven big appearances, but that wouldn't be accurate. He went from wanting to give up everything about himself for a good cause to giving up everything about himself for a good cause. The only thing that changed along the way is that he stopped letting the US government, military or secret services tell him what a good cause was. Steve managed much of his eight years on screen, in which he appeared in a film every single year. Think about that. 2011, 2012, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Including a cameo in 2013 as a costume worn by Loki, and in 2017 as Peter Parker's equivalent of Troy McClure. Over that time, Steve managed better than character change. He changed us. Especially from 2016 onwards, the world, and especially America, has needed a fixed point a figurehead that we can look up to and be reminded of what a decent, good person is. And while Steve has always been swathed in the stars and stripes, that flag has been abused by America's domestic enemies, proclaiming to be performing in the best interest of the people whilst actively seeking harm to Americans. 
It would be more apropos for Steve to be dressed somehow like the Statue of Liberty, a shining beacon of what can be achieved by the small, the ignored, the maligned, the marginalised, those who want to work together for a form of freedom that abhors tyranny rather than one that requires it. Steve, in the fiction of the MCU, served for two years between 1943 and 1945 as Captain America. Then, in the present day, four more years until he dropped the shield between Avengers and Civil War. And then two more as Steve Rogers, working undercover to help people until Infinity War. Then a further five, trying to pull things back together after the snap, culminating in taking on Thanos, first with the Avengers, then alone, and finally leading every hero to battle. That is a tour of duty of 13 years and 70 spent asleep, never once taking time for himself. I theorized the exact ending that Steve got on a previous podcast of ours, and though I couldn't tell you which one it was, I just couldn't conceive at the time of a world in which this man would lay down arms and rest. Even if returned to shrimpy frailty, it feels like Steve would continue to fight unless he had given everything already and many new heroes had joined him to shoulder that burden, that great responsibility. Then I thought Steve could switch off that voice in his head ordering him to keep getting up again. We know you can do this all day, Steve, but what if we lived in a world where you didn't have to? And that's what he effectively accomplished with his friends. The unstoppable force was stopped and it had to come from within. He had to be the one to stop himself. And once again, both Captain America and Iron Man want what we have more than anything. They want to just be able to be with the ones they love and not have to fight anymore. I can think of no better resolution than the one they gave him. One thing I loved so much about how this ended was how they left the big three Avengers. The ones with completed trilogies. Tony Stark, the man we were introduced to as selfish and sarcastic, makes good on his quest to be a better man. Dies a flawed but great hero, sacrificing the simple life, giving up what he so badly wants to keep for the world that he now loves. Steve Rogers, the man who wanted to sacrifice everything about himself, retires and lives the simple life he has always denied himself, knowing he has already done his best and played his part, and that rest is deserved and earned. And Thor, the boisterous warrior who we met about to be crowned king well before he was ready for it, has grown and changed and experienced and he's become that mature, grave man that eluded him originally, and then he's been better than his father and forgiven his brother and made peace with his mother. Thor doesn't simply sit down and become king because as well as becoming responsible, he also became cunning and clever and questioning and humorous and sensitive and respectful, and he's loved and lost and lost and lost and still further lost, and he sought revenge, and he's got it, and he's faced depression and ruin, and survived it. And he's expanded his worldview, and he's made new friends, and he's still uncertain, and he's still in motion. 
Thor takes the other path of the hero and carries on down the road to new adventures to do some more good, having responsibly ceded the throne he initially wanted so much to a woman he admires. The torches get passed on as old heroes bow out and new heroes step up, but it's not as simple as that. Some elders remain and some youngsters aren't yet ready. It's a cosmic dance and we get to see it play out. Nothing is taken, everything is given. We get the best of all worlds. We say goodbye and we await new days. It's perfect. Marvel actually helps us as a species. These movies aren't just a formula, they aren't just there to make money, they aren't all the same and they have a lot of room for improvement. But what they've given us at a crucial junction in human history is a modern mythology of powerful, hopeful yet flawed and slightly crappy people getting out of their own way and coming together to save everything. And when enough people see that in action, we actually start to believe it's possible. Santandrea. Steve Rogers from the, you know, from Jump Street, I didn't really know a whole lot about until the first Avengers movie where they first introduced Chris Evans in that character. And right away, I thought it was a great introduction to him. They handled the character very well. They obviously understood who he was. They really got what, what his character stood for and what made him tick. I didn't really have a deep connection to Cap, though, until I read the comic of Civil War. Then I really started to get behind him and thought, okay, this is actually someone that I'm excited to see on screen now, not just because of Chris Evans' performance, although that certainly helped, but also because I knew that that storyline was kind of in the, in the pipeline. It was coming in the years to come. And I was really looking forward to that. And, of course, I was very fortunate to be able to work on Civil War for a little bit. That made it all the, all the sweeter when it came out. And so pretty much from the beginning, Cap has, has been someone that I have looked forward to seeing on screen and, and really uh, unexpectedly found a, a pretty deep connection with. Um, and again... Being the, in air quotes, Superman of the group, I really didn't expect that to happen. I thought he was, you know, from just looking at who he is, he seems like a bit of a square. Uh, He doesn't seem like he's got all that much to offer. But throughout all of these films and, you know, helped along with the writing and with Chris Evans' performance, it's been someone that I've really come to connect with. And and it's a character that uh, I've been excited to see over the years. I fully expected Steve to die at the end of Endgame. I really did. Uh, and again, was surprised when he didn't. But I completely agree with Alex that this was the way to really send him off. He finally got his, his moment, those great 
um, those great moments that we were hoping to see with him. I was in the room when, you know, I said the, the assemble at the top of the show, and I was in the room when Chris Evans as Captain America said those words. And I almost started crying right there. I was like, oh my god, this is so awesome. Like, you can't help but feel so... <clears throat> Sorry. Um... <sighs> you can't help but feel like such a hero and like so pumped to go forward when you hear those words. So it was a really... It was a really great end to his character, and I really appreciate that they had that in there. And I apologize for getting a- emotional, but it was such a great way to end that arc, and it was so amazing to be there to actually see it happen. Okay, move on, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You still have one minute if you want it. Um, no, I, I would say go on, because okay. I'm a mess now. <laughs> That's fine, Maya. That was wonderful. Thank you very, very much. I'll put some awesome music behind it so everyone else just gets choked up. If it helps, you made Alex cry too. Not <laughs> <laughs> the only one. Also, nobody apologized Same. for getting. Yeah, nobody apologized for getting emotional on this show. <laughs> yeah, that was beautiful. <laughs> okay, so Neil. Wow, I have to follow that. I yeah. feel like I'm going to let down here. Okay, uh, well, uh, you got four minutes. Uh, give it, give it your absolute best, Neil. Assemble. So way back in 2011 when we knew we were going to get Captain America, I was so excited because Cap is and has been one of my favorite Marvel heroes since I, I started reading comics, just to know that we were going to actually get that character on screen. And while the first film was entertaining enough and sort of a throwback, it wasn't until he didn't really mature and really become Cap until like Winter Soldier and Civil War and the Avengers where you get to see the fact that above all else... Cap is the heart and soul of the Avengers. He's the one that stands for what's right and for doing what he believes in and holding up everything that he believes is good and never backing down, like you said to Thanos. He is, if Thanos is the irresistible force, Cap is the immovable object and he really proved it in this film. And it's been a joy to see that character grow and change on the screen, realizing that perhaps working you know, hand in hand with Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. wasn't the right thing to do to stretching out and making a move on his own with this sort of the secret Avengers with the uh, Falcon and like whatever and you know just seeing that that they took such great care and respect with that character where you don't see that a lot of the time with um, the, the previous superhero movies that Alex mentioned with, with Superman you, you can look at a certain Man of Steel movie that does not respect Superman at all yet every time we see Cap appear on screen in any of the MCU it's Cap I, I always see Cap it's he is there lifted from the pages the belief in the heart is there and it was such a joy to see this film and to see and get the moments to get the moment i had been waiting for that they teased me with in avengers um, age of ultron where he he is deemed worthy and can wield molnir and man that moment that moment made me lose my mind so much i was so happy to see that cap was there and he was worthy and wielding the hammer and taking the fight and getting to uh, getting to say the line assemble and just bringing down everything he could to do what was right to fight the good fight and he got his reward he got the happy ending that i think we all wish that cap did you know we all wanted him to go back to peggy and the minute we cut to the scene of him returning the stones 
I think there wasn't a doubt in anyone's mind that he wasn't coming back. He was going back to Peggy. He wasn't coming back to the Avengers. He was going to have the life that he'd sacrificed in order to be the hero that the world needed. He literally was the hero the world needed, and he fought tooth and nail, and he got to have a proper reward. And I know at the end, when the camera pushes into the house and you see them dancing and they have the kiss, and I just... I. I know there was not a dry eye in the house at all. That was such a moment of joy and happiness to see, especially after like the ending that uh, Endgame gave us. Just to have that moment of sheer joy, it can't be beat. It was so satisfying. It was everything that I hoped for. Cap, I got my cap from the books on the big screen, portrayed by a man who got it so right, and writers who got it so right that. When he's on screen, when he's doing the, you know, when, when Rocket says he's good at that, he really is. He makes you believe and he gives you the will and the reason to fight because you know he's got your back and you never, ever doubt Cap for a second. Uh, you know, at the, uh, you said that there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Yeah. I got, as soon as Tony Stark was dying, like three people got up and started marching out like a good 12 minutes from the end. They're like, that's like, 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 all they were there to see was whether or not Tony Stark died. And they were like, yep, he died, okay, I'm out. Or, or it overwhelmed them. Either way, they didn't want to see the end. They had no idea what happened to Steve. Or they were Thanos fans and they were really ticked off that he got beat. Maybe. <laughs> Fuck them. Uh, however, they weren't the worst person in my audience. I've documented in my quick reviews the animals that I share a cinema with occasionally. And... At that point, Maya, the absolute culmination of 22 films worth of Marvel, when Steve says, Avengers, there was absolute silence, and everyone was like, <sighs> and then this fucking woman, like three rows down from me, went, assemble, he's going to say assemble. Assemble. And it was just this quiet heartbeat, and everyone was thinking, and this stupid cow just ruined the moment. And I, oh, oh. If it weren't for the fact that it's the most amazing moment in cinema history, debatably, um, I, I think I probably would have thrown everything within reach in her direction. I don't know how you always get stuck with the worst people in the audience. Like, how it does this always It was 11 o'clock on a Thursday morning and everyone had taken the day off work to be here. It was the most packed cinema I've ever been in. It sounds like you were in you were in a theater with Eric Idle dressed up like an old woman. <laughs> <laughs> How could you be so monumentally selfish and stupid to be like, I'm having this line, Steve? Assemble! Like that beats. Are you Chris Evans lady? No, no, you are not. Then Lord of the up. Rings fans, that beats that kid shouting out during the two towers when Shadowfax appears. Is that his horse? That's a kid. No problem, kid. You are totally exonerated. Ugh. Anyway. I, I live in, like, one of the roughest towns, apparently, in the country, according to certain newspapers. I'm not joking. There was a big, bald-headed, tattooed guy in front of me, bawling his <laughs> eyes out. Oh, I believe it. That's excellent. Oh, God, fucking hell. We, uh, like, when I was at Sharon's screening, because uh, I saw it Thursday and we saw it on th- Sunday, we had to, I had to keep my lip buttoned all of Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and then Sunday morning. Yep. And I did really oh. well. And then, like, during the funeral, proof that Tony Stark has a heart, like, three down from me on the left, a guy went, proof that Tony Stark has a heart. That was in the first Iron Man film. He's just chatting away to his mate, and I was just like, you are almost within punching distance, sir. But I didn't. (laughs) 
Because you're I, a gentleman. Because I've, I've grown. <laughs> you need to become the rock. You need to just do the rock's catch line of, know your damn role and shut your, your mouth. mouth. <laughs> Honestly, I almost did, but it's such a moment, so I couldn't ruin it for everyone else. Anyway, Sharon is now going to talk about Natasha Romanoff. So my view on Natasha has been quite up and down. She's not a character that I knew much about when the series started. And the fact that her intro was, while very cool and kick-ass, essentially glorified secretary. <laughs> He's pulling a face, but it's true. <laughs> just for the intro part. I want just, one. just for the intro part. <laughs> no. The Her last few appearances since Winter Soldier, which was really the one where I absolutely fell in love with her, she has felt a little bit sidelined. She hasn't had much to do. And I really wanted to see her get something meaty this time. And I know it must have been hard for them trying to divide up the time and make sure that all of the original six Avengers got a satisfactory ending. But I think for me, the ending that she finally got is one that I couldn't wish for a better one for her. And I don't think she could have wished for a better one for herself. And I know there's been gripes in the past, particularly with how Joss Whedon handled her in Age of Ultron. And frustrations with her being one of the only elements of female representation to a point, certainly that was being placed front and centre. But the fact that she got that moment of sacrifice... And more specifically, that it was not that she was sacrificed, but that she made that choice. She stepped forward and took that all-important position that somebody had to. Kind of shot me through the heart a little bit. And the thing that occurred to me when you had that final shot where she was down on the rocks is that she walked in there and had to admit that even though the Red Skull knew what her father's name was she hadn't known she didn't have a family and until she started to be a full time Avenger she didn't have friends much we know how much Nick Fury came to mean to her but she'd always been isolated either through her own doing because it felt safer that way or because of the way she was brought up because of what she was asked to do for the various countries that she's allied herself with but the fact that To get the Soul Stone, one of them had to lose somebody that they loved. And that Clint loved her enough that losing her got it for him. That she was loved. 
was the thing I took away from that. Debbie Morse. I, I had worried, and I know Karu had mentioned that he was very worried that they would fridge Natasha. And I also had my worries about that. But that scene, as soon as the Red Skull said his, his piece, I hadn't put a huge amount of thought into it until that point. And then I was like, oh shit. And I'm like, how are they going to handle this? And then when it, they start, Natasha and Clint start talking and start discussing. And, and it, it hit me a little bit before it made it explicit that both of them want to sacrifice themselves. And at that very instant, I was completely satisfied with the scene. Whichever way it went, I was like, whichever, whoever in, ends up being in the end, they chose it, and it was perfect. And I, I'm glad they went with Natasha, um, especially, you know, we, we've heard all about her having read in her ledger. You know, that's, we've heard that many, many times over the course of the various movies. And that the fact that she completely chose her own fate, she got exactly what she wanted. And that, that shot of her down on the rocks, you know, it, it, you know, it choked me up. And I, the movie did not actually make me cry, but I did almost cry there because that was very emotional. And Hawkeye gets to be with his family again because of her sacrifice which again was something she would have wanted she did want obviously I, I could not have asked for anything more Mackenzie Easton I, I agree with everyone else on this that I think this was an excellent ending for Natasha and she is a character that while I've not always 100% liked what uh how she's portrayed in these movies I care a lot about and am very grateful to see her matter as much in this movie as she does because that's one of the reasons that I I felt I wanted more of her in the MCU and I'm glad in this last film we got to see her as a person as much as we did and I think in her final moments in uh, accepting that it's Clint who needs to go on and in deciding that she needs to sacrifice herself, she's also accepting that she's deciding that she needs to be sacrificed for Clint's sake and at the same time accepting that she has been redeemed because if Clint has done all of this awful stuff and put red in his ledger and she doesn't think he deserves to die for that she doesn't think she does either and that's not why she's doing this she's not doing it because she thinks she's been a bad person She's doing it because she thinks the people she loves deserve to have a better life moving forward, and she cares that much about them. And I think it's really, it's powerful that we've seen this character grow to accept herself that much, and to see her become part of this found family and have everyone care so much when she's gone. And... She doesn't get the big funeral send-off like Tony does, but she does get a moment where you can tell how much she's meant and how none of them were really expecting 
that she wouldn't be like none of them were expecting anybody wouldn't come back, but that it it really shakes them all. And while I didn't understand a hundred percent where she was at with Bruce by this point, I do appreciate how he reacted to it and how everyone else related to her and how she related to everyone else after this horrible event, not by giving up, but by trying so desperately to, to save what's left of the world. And I think she was an excellent, like first female character in the MCU, as far as heroes are concerned to lead the way for the rest of them. And I think she set a pretty good example by the end of end game here. Maya Santandrea. I'm I'm a bit torn when it came to Natasha, and that's kind of why I wanted to talk about her on the show. I really liked how, after they did the whole five years later, and they've shown where all the Avengers have ended up, and showing how everyone's trying to move on, I liked that they showed her stepping up into more of a leadership role, which is something that I think has been kind of missing from her character for a while. For her to step up into something resembling the Nick Fury status, that role in the team. I thought that was a good place for her to be. And I was like, okay, I I like that. I like that she's kind of taken on more responsibility. She's acting less selfishly. She doesn't have to really be... She's not really at the whim of any government or Secret Service or other. And then the more the film went on the more I started to worry that her character was getting a little bit lost and by the end and while I do love the moments when she and Clint are are going after you know who's going to be the one to sacrifice themselves I don't know something about it just didn't quite work for me and I'm not sure if it was it there were, there were a couple of factors, and I didn't want to get into this too much because Nebula is going to be her own topic, not for me. But some, some combination of Nebula not mentioning the things that she already knew about the Soul Stone, uh, the Red Skull kind of dropping some things that I wish had a chance to actually go somewhere from here, considering what happens to Natasha. The fact that like a lot of the logic of the situation started to interfere with the moment for me. And when I started questioning the logic and like, Oh, would it really work this way? If, if they kind of, you know, like it, would it work with a self-sacrifice or do you have to actually like take something else? And when I started to pick apart the logic, that's kind of when it started to fall apart. And I understand what they were trying to do for me. It, didn't completely work. Uh, I'm a little disappointed that now she's not going to be in further MCU movies now that we've got a lot of her character out of these last few moments. I really wish that she were going to be around to pick up some of these details and pick up some of this character development and move forward with it. The only thing that I would say I hope continuing on is that They could always make a standalone Black Widow movie that happens before all of these events. They could do something like a prequel kind of film with her that explores some more of her character and maybe 
fills in some of the gaps and some of the details that we've been wondering about over the years. I hope that's what they end up doing. I'm not sure if that's really in the works, but I, I got to be completely honest. I was a little bit disappointed with how things ended for her, and I kind of wish she was still around. Brendan Agnew. So they they are um, doing the the Black Widow movie as potentially some sort of prequel. I don't know how much of this has been like hugely publicized, but um, one of the big like major female supporting roles that has been apparently hugely sought after is a not like they they haven't tied a bow on it but it's someone who could potentially be uh someone to either carry on the black widow mantle or you know someone who's working with her in some sort of like teacher student capacity or something like that it's being Mm -hmm. played by florence Pugh, who um i don't know if anyone saw outlaw king but so not outlaw king fighting with my family she's fantastic in that okay page the wrestler uh they are going to be doing a couple at least a couple of those things that you're looking for as much as i love what they did with natasha's arc i think this is one of those elements where the russos being very good at logistical story but also an endgame really trying for heavy emotional story beats kind of diverged a little bit just just the fact that they start natasha as a character in winter soldier specifically saying so, you know the way she's acting is a good way not to die as a very deliberate contrast to Steve Rogers and then end her character making the Steve Rogers choice, but on a much larger scale. I definitely think that she deserved to continue on as a character and she's, you know, acted beautifully in this movie, but that kind of circle for her character arc is just really impressive. I, I I definitely understand there being problems with, you know, maybe the, the execution of it was, was off or, or something and it's definitely something I feel conflicted about as well in terms of I really wanted to see more of her but that that was a hell of a way to close a circle. I completely understand why they did things the way they did. Somebody had to go and in the grand scheme of everything, yes, it makes a little bit more sense for her to make the sacrifice and in the kind of realm of I really liked this movie with a lot of reservations. This was one of the reservations that I'd kind of put up on the on the cork board like let's put a pin in that and just leave that is this is one of the reservations i had i feel like natasha would not have wanted a funeral on the scale of tony she would not have wanted that kind of attention and i think the way they i felt the way they did it was perfect i would agree natasha the famous spy yeah yeah she was always a shadow tony was the public facing superhero exactly and also, it, it really struck me the fact that it, it's never commented on, but in the right at the beginning, when she's first on screen there, her hair is, you can see that she hasn't dyed it probably in five years. Maybe it's not five years, I don't know, but she has not dyed it to where it's, and you can see she's let it grow and she's letting her natural color show. And for someone who is notorious, not notorious, but always perfectly groomed, always looks, I mean, I mean, Scarlett Johansson is an, an astonishingly beautiful woman in general, but, but as Black Widow, she always looks perfectly put together. And that in Endgame, that she is 
looks a bit of a mess. And she didn't look bad, but she, for her, that spoke volumes to me that she is grieving this whole thing so hard. And it's this little thing that never really gets commented on or anything. It's just, it's just, it, it's there for you to see if you catch it. I will put in one final note, and it's nothing really to do with Endgame at all. I'll just say that Black Widow film should have come in Phase 2. Agreed. Yep. Yep. Yes, uh-huh. absolutely. Even if Phase 2 had been seven films, we can cope. We'll deal. Okay, so next up, The God of Thunder, Thor, Jerome McIntosh. Take it away. Oh, by the way, Neil, Jerome, me saying I want one? No, just got like it was a while back and i didn't want to interrupt anyone but it got me nostalgic for when we started this in 2012 (laughs) (laughs) been doing this a while yeah okay oh wow um so uh jerome god of thunder if you will uh thor left me feeling complicated through most this film primarily at the beginning um now at at the start of it like the fact that he was ready to go, I like the fact like like he was looking to rectify his mistake in the last film, but like it left him with no feeling of a compliment. Like it left him feeling like it was too little, too late. What I didn't enjoy was the whole fat suit. Like they went for the cheap comedy moment there. Now I I was fine expecting to seem like schlubby or anything, but like the ridiculous. Like, fat suit they had on was just... It was quite disappointing, if I'm being honest. And, like, a lot of the jokes were hitting, but it always came back to that... uh, They went for that cheap joke at the beginning. But going forward throughout the movie, it sort of... Obviously, because he had clothes on, they changed his, uh, like, body shape. And I did like the point where, like, Thor... The place that Thor was in, he'd spend the moment getting to stay with his mother for a longer time rather than completing the mission. I did enjoy that aspect of things. And as things went on, like it, it's obvious that Chris Hemsworth wanted to keep Thor as a more comedic character. And that's why he's been being paired up with the guardians. And I, I'm interested to see that move forward. Um, and obviously he still, it, while he was, um, that whole time that he was gunning after Thanos and even after he killed him, that deep like level of dissatisfaction, like I think there was something of a connection between him and Thanos. Like when they had that, they didn't get a feeling of accomplishment after what they did. Like when you saw Thanos, he was in this um, like beleaguered, like, sorry state and he wasn't regretful but it didn't he didn't seem jubilant or accomplished i should say he just seemed like ready to die and that's sort of the place that thor was in the fact that he was he completely abandoned his people for a good few years having valkyrie take over things i think he he sort of learned that he isn't a suitable leader like he's great in a moment of crisis but when things calm down and he has to take care of people, he becomes, he's still a bit too selfish, even after all these years. Brendan Agnew. So I kind of love Fat Thor. I have problems with the way 
things were handled sort of, I guess, in context of behind the scenes. There's this whole thing with like this fitness app that Chris Hemsworth has been like pushing and how that ties in with him wanting to do a fat suit with Thor and uh, kind of like market, you know, whatever he's wanting to market with, you know, hey, get in shape, you know, take off the take off that fat body like a fat suit or like a pair of pants. Um, that's highly problematic for a lot of reasons that you can, you know, look into. There's a lot of people who have weighed in on this. There's also a lot of people who have felt like seen in a positive way with a character who basically suffered a huge psychological setback and gained a bunch of weight, but then is still deemed being a worthy human being deemed a hero without going through the quote unquote redemption of having to lose the weight we see him at the end of the movie in a very healthy psychological place, but not because he's skinny Thor again, but, but he's reached this kind of equilibrium. There are some jokes, and I'm definitely with, you know, drum on that. There are some jokes that I think were cheap. There are some points that I think didn't land when they were going for, you know, body shaming as opposed to just making fun of him for being a burnout. Lebowski is, is, a, good, is a good place for them to go. You know, the cheese whiz line, not so much. Yeah. I really appreciate some of the things they did. They took a potentially very problematic visual gag and made some really meaty character choices with it and uh, like like drum i'm very excited to see the asgardians of the galaxy i i need that in my eyeballs yesterday and also the fact that he hands things over to valkyrie that was a great passing of the torch moment i thought that was both in keeping with his character in previous films and the changes he went through in ragnarok jesse ferguson okay so i I'm going to come up butting directly against Brendan for most of this because I hate Fat Thor. I despise everything that the Russos did with these two movies. I I understand the the psychological setback. I'm I don't hate that Thor got fat. I hate that the fact that Thor is fat is constantly played for laughs. I think that he's that all of this trauma that he went through, everything that they, you know, that happened to him, his failure has been reduced to, isn't it funny that he fell asleep in the briefing? Isn't it, you know, everybody's making jokes about his weight and even like the camera in moments that should be really, really impactful. Like at the end where, when he shakes Valkyrie's hand and, you know, is handing off the kingdom to her, the camera then shifts focus and we get another shot of his gut and everybody in the theater chuckles. I thought that was really inappropriate. I didn't like it. You know, that just really bothered me. I also feel like the Russos basically took back everything that all of the growth that he had throughout Ragnarok. I think that, I mean, if you look at the the, the physical manifestations of that, you know, in the in Norse mythology, Odin gave up an eye to gain wisdom. And they presented that in, uh, you know, in that scene where, you know, Thor loses his eye in the process of defending his people, becomes a better leader, kind of learns how to lead his people, uh, learns that he doesn't need to be, you know, he doesn't need his magic weapon to be powerful. And then in you know, in Infinity War, they gave him a new eye, they gave him a new magic weapon. And in uh, at the end of Endgame, he takes these people that he, you know, was responsible for and was actively taking responsibility for, 
offloads all of that to Valkyrie and then fucks off with the Guardians. And it just it really bothered me. Um, And like I said, I see what they were going for. I don't think they executed it well. And I think they spent too much time playing it for laughs. He got to my mind, he got too real moments where they examined his trauma when he was talking to his mom. And then, you know, at the end when he's giving up his responsibility, which you can take or leave. Um, But I think the whole rest of the time it was just played for jokes. I did like, I did appreciate what uh, was mentioned before that, you know, he could still be out of shape and still be heroic. I thought that was great. Um, But again, they just, they kept going back to, isn't fat Thor funny? And that really, really bothered me. Mackenzie Easton. Well, I'm going to come down somewhere more on the positive, but still slightly mixed. I acknowledge all, all of the problematic elements that have been up, been brought up by everyone else here. Fat Thor is, it's messy. But I think in a weird way that Thor is messy in Endgame is kind of true to how Thor has been throughout the franchise because honestly of the four of the, not four, of the core Avengers, Thor's movies have been the messiest. He's had the least consistency and I kind of in a way, really appreciate that in Endgame, it, I do feel like they do set back his character growth from Ragnarok. And Ragnarok's one of my favorite movies. And I'm actually one of those people who's pretty fond of Dark World. They do reset his character growth a bit, but it's not in a, oh, he just didn't learn anything way. At least from my perspective, it comes off more as a, yeah, you can grow as a person and learn new things and still be set back by something. You can still have trauma after you've had trauma and have it throw you back into a state before and you have to regrow from that. As someone who's dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder and crashes and comes backs and all of that, he's still growing and I think it's kind of valuable to see that, to have a hero who's not resolved all of his stuff who does get to talk to his dead parent but then doesn't go off on a heroic like sacrificial note because Thor still has things to figure out and sometimes a character growth isn't a straight line upwards and for all the messiness there is in Endgame I kind of appreciate that he gets the statement that you're not you don't have to be what you're supposed to be you have to be what you are. And I think, hopefully, I don't know if he's actually going to be in the next Guardians movie or if Taika Waititi is going to get him back or what's going to happen with Thor in the future. But I think giving him the opportunity to not be, oh, you were born to do this specific thing, but to be whatever it is he's actually the best at is actually, I think, really interesting. And I think potentially, oh, sorry, interesting, really valuable and i think a different arc than royalty characters often get and i really like that he hands it off to valkyrie at the end because i think the idea that the leader of asgard has to be someone from this thoroughly messed up family if we're being fair is maybe not what they need and it's not what thor needs and it's not what the universe of the mcu needs and i think 
I think it's going to be interesting to see him moving forward. And I actually like how he's been, how he's been set up. And I also just like that Dark World is like a thing that they're not so ashamed of that they, you know, spend some time talking about it. And the fact that like, yeah, he's lost arguably more than any of the other heroes. He's had so many like setbacks and like he's lost just relationships in a human way that a lot of people haven't. And besides, like, I guess Steve has lost that as well. But we get a lot more of that for Steve than we do for Thor up until this point. And I like that we talk about it in Endgame that like, yeah, no, Thor has been affected by all of this stuff and he's a wreck. But that doesn't mean he's hopeless. Thank you, Mackenzie. Excellent timing. I don't know how long I went there, but and no, no, yeah. just under, just under, uh, and you are allowed to say interesting as long as you expound on it. Like if you just say <laughs> it was interesting, dot dot dot. How? <laughs> I think I, I think I covered. You how. did well. Yeah, thank you. That was that was. I think good. I'm the, the only one that's banned from saying interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it's only in the context of uh, what did you think of uh, Endgame? It was interesting. How? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the unexpected dark horse of uh, Endgame. I'm not going to take any of the juicy stuff. I'm just going to hand her straight over. Nebula to Jesse Ferguson. So I feel like Endgame ended up being as much Nebula's movie as it did Tony's or Steve's. Um, she plays such a prominent role and has quite a bit of character growth, a surprising amount of character growth for what's been a relatively small character up to this point. Uh, one of the main through lines of time travel stories in general is that of regret. And Nebula's story brings that regret front and center because she's literally confronted with her older misguided self. And a lot of the characters meet older selves, you know, Steve does for sure. But her case is so different because she's gone through so much growth since then. And it's, she's able to, you know, look back and, and try really hard to say, like, this is not what you need to be. You can do so much better and try to, you know, trying to change that past self, which again, common theme in time travel is trying to change things and realizing that you can't. And she had ended up having to, you know, kill the old nebula and not, you know, wasn't able to get through to her as much. There's that fear of Thanos and that fear of, of disappointment, that fear of failure that, that was just too powerful. And when she destroyed that older version, I kind of felt like that was a metaphor for her letting go of the guilt in a way of saying, you know, I know this thing was really bad I can't fix it. And the only thing that I can do is move on and get rid of that, get rid of that piece of me and move on trying to be the best version that I am, uh, or the best, the best version of myself that I can be moving forward. Mackenzie Easton. Nebula, uh, the third character I picked and finishing off my trauma triple feature here. Uh, I really <laughs> appreciated how Nebula was handled in this movie. I have been growing to care a lot more about her character over, um, over the guardians movies and into the end game territory. And one of the things that I most appreciated about her 
in Endgame and how her arc was handled was that she gets to be there for Gamora in the way that Gamora was there for her in Guardians 2. And they have this deeply traumatic family relationship where they both have been through so much horrible things at the hands of Thanos. They're his first victims as far as like we as the audience know. We know how bad this guy is on some level because of how much these women have been broken by him and how resilient they both are and Gamora is one of my favorite characters in the MCU and that we lost her in Infinity War made me a little hesitant going into Endgame but Nebula and her relationship there was a real surprise for me one that I really deeply enjoyed was getting to see Nebula as an actual character who got a significant amount of time here and got to like have interactions with people that I wouldn't have expected I thought how she and Tony were framed at the very beginning of the film and their friendship growing and that that Nebula gets to kind of have that found family in this movie that Gamora got to have in the Guardians movie is really, I don't know, it was a really interesting dynamic and I think it was an intentional parallel and it's almost like they've switched places at this point. But I kind of like that, that now these sisters have both been through completely different experiences, but they get to be together moving forward in a way that I really didn't see coming. <laughs> they kind of switch places the same way that Tony and Steve did throughout the series. Yeah, I I like that, though. I Especially since Nebula was kind of almost a cartoonish villain in the first Guardians movie, that she gets to just actually be a character later. That's one of the things I love about James Gunn's characters is that they <laughs> they get to switch around and actually, you know, grow. Because Nebula wasn't a Thanos villain. Nebula was a trauma victim who was doing mm-hmm. completely, not good, but understandable things. And it's one of the things about the MCU, I think, that looking back, people are going to really value is that it humanizes people who have been through trauma way more than I think I've ever seen films do. And I, I appreciate that. Jerome McIntosh. Nebula has become one of my favorite, like one of my top three favorite uh, MCU characters, especially after this film. Um, I really love the fact that we got the story of her going back in time and both her and Gamora, like it was, it's sort of like a, it was sort of a what if scenario of what if Nebula and Gamora rebelled at the same time, like they get to have that moment. She goes back to when Gamora was thinking of like thwarting Thanos' plan, like this was her opportunity and the fact that they got to take that together the way Gamora would have wanted was a wonderful moment. That moment where she was trying to convince her past self, I've been through it, I know you can break away from this, and the fact, the resignation of her having to kill her previous self was, it was sort sort of heartbreaking, the fact that she realized she couldn't convince herself, even with herself as evidence. Mm -hmm. It's clear over the years that uh, Carrie Gillan has developed, like, the little ticks and mannerisms of Nebula, like the fact that she always has, she's similar to Drax where she has this intense nature, so when she says something completely out of left field, it hits far better. The fact that like, at the end where both her and Drax are suggesting uh, Star-Lord and uh, Thor to fight, like wholeheartedly, like, this is how we'll resolve this problem. 
yes, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. Like, I'm looking forward to that dynamic. Like, she's full. She, it's like people have said she's found her family, and it's obviously like her one of her major goals right now will be searching for her sister. The performance just broke my heart, especially after the the scene between her and Gamora and Guardians Two. All I wanted was a sister, which was just like a knife through the heart. And now seeing that in this context, it, it put a whole different spin on on her character. I think you said it best when you started us off. She really was the dark horse at this movie, and mm-hmm. you know, it's no a great thing expected, for her to be. No one expected her to be the one who. I mean, she arguably goes through the biggest arc because you yeah. can see the version of her that hasn't gone through the arc juxtaposed. Uh, honestly, I, I cried most of the way through this film. <laughs> um, that When I went back to see it a second time, the uh, girl behind the uh, counter said, honestly, did you cry? And I went, there may have been one moment when I stopped crying, but it was only to laugh. But um, <laughs> it, what started me off was just Stark and Nebula playing a game of like that flick football thing and him saying, you know, you won, good game. And her looking for any kind of deception or revenge and going, oh, okay. And then he was saying, did you like it? And she said, it was fun. It's Nebula becoming human. So when she finds him after having given his message and you know sits him up in a chair, finding a moment of kindness, there were just, what we can't really cover when we're talking about characters is just how many joyful or touching moments there were throughout this film. It was jam-packed to the gills. Every scene had multiple bits. Memorable and rewarding. The, 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 the bit that almost immediately after this that I was just like sitting watching Sharon out of the corner of my eye is when Stark starts to wake up and he's got golden light on his face for the first time. Me and everyone else in the audience was going, please, please be Carol. And it did so, but it did so in a restrained way. Rather than just going, yeah, all the time. It was measured in how it delivered those satisfying moments. It was impressive as hell. Neil Taylor on Clint Barton. So this film decides to open it up and decided to pour salt in the wounds that the last film did. With the, Not only did we get to see everyone dust, and you thought Spider-Man dusting was heartbreaking. I was crying before it happened because I knew what was about to happen. It took me 30 oh, yeah. seconds to realize this is pre-snap. Clint, who is someone who I'm not particularly keen on comic book wise or, 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 or the cartoon wise, but but Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton in this Hawkeye, I just love him. To so to see that moment of anguish and just to know what was coming, to feel my stomach just not up into this ball of dread because you are going to see the family go and. You don't, but it's, you don't see them turning to dust, but it's heartbreaking nonetheless because it's turned around. My daughter's gone, oh, that's weird. Hey, where's my kids? Where's my wife? And then to just have to experience that and know it, it was heartbreaking. It, it could be because, you, know, you know, I have my sons and I could not imagine how that would feel. But they give you hints because one of the weird things they do, I don't have much connection to the Ronan character that he becomes. But my God, they... I completely understand what happens to Clint in this. He does become the Punisher. He becomes Clint Barton, the Punisher. And all that fury and anger being 
just a man with a bow and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even save my family when I was needed. And just to feel that anger and have him focus it in become this... I, I don't want to say the punishment. It's the only thing I can equate it to. He becomes this 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 killer of evil and as we said before gets red in his ledger and gets so cross and it's the only way he can he can deal with that to slowly coming back round to natasha coming back to to, to pull him out of that that sort of horrible hole that he'd, hell hole he'd found himself in of being this 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 destroyer of villainy and just to bring him back to trying to be hawkeye to eventually the the time heist plan and and then sort of having literally to battle with one of his closest friends over who gets to sacrifice themselves to get the soul stone. And it's just saying, no, you've got a family. You need to stay. And him, and it, I think his biggest fear being, what have I done? Can I go back to my family? Having that there really, really was, uh, I love that bit for, for Clint because he, he gets something there. It's not huge and it's, he's not a major focus, but I did really like to see that, someone in all the ways that the heroes sort of have their own way with dealing with anything and he goes off the rails and becomes a monster almost and it's scary to think yeah i kind of get that i wouldn't be surprised if i did something the same if that happened just to become just let go and just become this angry angry force of nature and just looking for someone to punish and and realizing how empty it is and needing the others to to bring him back, to give him a, a, a worthy goal, and to, to help fight to bring his family back. Jesse Ferguson. I did the same thing. I felt that as soon as we opened up with, you know, Clint and his family on the range, I saw that this was pre-snap, and I, or I felt that this was pre-snap, and my, like, Inside, I just started going, no, 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 no. Because, again, I knew what was going to happen. Everybody knew it was going to happen, but it still hit so hard. And when he turned around and there was just the the dust, the ash in the air, and we all knew what that meant, but he didn't, was just a, a huge, huge gut punch. I I understand exactly where he went through, you know, how he turned into, you know, the – the Punisher-esque character. It is rare that I find something with a man whose whole thing is my dead family, and I don't find it somewhat upsetting, but I didn't actually ever have that thought in Endgame. It worked within the context so well that I I really liked how they handled Clint, and I think somewhere early in the movie I had the thought to myself, wow, I've been too hard on Clint throughout the entire franchise, because... He hasn't been my favorite character, and I felt that he's taken away time in other movies that I thought would have gone better in other places, but I think it was all worth it for how he was handled in Endgame. Karu Nagisa. So what I really loved about what they did with Hawkeye in this is, first of all, that part of the beginning broke my heart in the first couple of minutes of the movie. It does an amazing job of reminding us what is important to him. And there really aren't that many things. As much as he is part of the Avengers family, that's not where his priority lies. He has another family, a literal family, but, you know, Natasha's a part of that. However, as much as, you know, he seems to care about, you know, Cap and Tony and all that, there's a sense of this is a job when that comes down to it. 
So giving us that second, those few minutes just to remind us what the stakes are for him changes sort of everything about his later uh, actions. As far as those actual actions go, I quite liked what they did with him. I love the Ronin outfits, first of all. Second of all, I love this idea that he becomes this sort of unstoppable force when he wants to. It's, it's, it feels like it's trying to respond to all the, what's Hawkeye doing on this team? Even the Age of Ultron, where he's talking about, I shoot arrows, none of this makes sense. It's, it's sort of a response to that. It's not that he shoots arrows, it's the same argument that can be made for Batman. It's that he is willing to push himself and his willpower is such that he is able to sort of push forward through all of this and kind of use that pain to fuel him. Uh, when he's in his Ronin outfit and several times for the movie, a lot of the shots and a lot of the poses that he's in look a lot like ones from The Seven Samurai, specifically the character Kyuzo, you know, the kind of stoic badassy one that uh, when you first meet him it's dueling with some guy who's got a chip on his shoulder and is pretty sure that he won this kind of fake duel with sticks and uh or that it was a tie and Kyozo is like no no I won and it doesn't end well for the other guy and that's basically what's going on here is you have him embracing this Ronin persona, specifically in the sense that as a Ronin, he has no clan, he has no family. And that's why also Nat's sacrifice hurts him that much more. It's the last thing that he has that seems to matter. Fortunately, you know, it all comes back and you get to see him deal with that by the end, but it's a lovely journey of his from that surprise in Age of Ultron until kind of the end of this film, Hawkeye keeps surprising us. I just want to add one tiny thing as well. For me, his best moment comes at the very end, and it's that moment that he has with Wanda at the funeral. Mm -hmm. Because it took me a second to wrap my head around why those two ended up with a little solo moment together. Because they actually have a little thread of companionship that goes from Age of Ultron, when he inspired her to actually step up and be an Avenger, to Civil War, where he's the one who comes out of retirement to break her out. And now the fact that the two of them are the ones who've lost permanently someone who they're going to mourn more than anyone else. Because obviously everybody's lost Tony, but each of them have a very personal and permanent gap now in their lives going forward. And for them to have just a tiny little moment acknowledging that, I thought had quite a lot of value in a, a point where it could have become overbearingly all about Tony. Mm-hmm. Oh, how can I let this happen? Hey, hey, you okay? Oh, this is all our fault. Hey, look at me. 
It's your fault. It's everyone's fault. Who cares? Are you up for this? Are you? Look, I just need to know, because the city is, is flying. Okay, look, the city is flying. We're fighting an army of robots. And I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes sense. But I'm going back out there, because this is my job. Okay, and I can't do my job and babysit. Doesn't matter what you did or what you were. If you go out there, you fight, and you fight to kill. Stay in here, you're good. I'll send your brother to come find you, but if you step out that door, you are an Avenger. Bruce Banner, the smart Hulk. Jerome McIntosh. They finally built to the Hulk that I was expecting. Like, Hulk has had the arc that I've been hoping for. We get the Bruce Banner and Hulk have made the agreement. Like, they're the same person. Like, they, he says, he's like he stopped looking at Hulk as disease and thought of him as, as the cure. It's clear that, like, he's reconciled with that side of himself. The Hulk doesn't have to be a raging force of destruction. There's this juxtaposition of a lot of people who haven't seen Hulk for a while, expecting to be this massive, still expecting the Hulk smash, like running around, destroying everything. And you don't get this in this movie. He's very much Bruce Banner the entire time. And even to the fact that in the final battle, he's been injured. Like he can't participate. Like he's in the state that Thanos was at the beginning of this film. The most he's, been able to do is hold up a building to keep people safe like that's been his role throughout the movie just being the brains rather than the brawn but if i'm being honest when it comes to fighting evil beings he is very powerful and useful yeah banner's powerful and useful too is he though he is now neil taylor you had the positive and this is my negative the movie i don't like the hulk in this movie because it's not hulk it's a big green banner and that was kind of disappointing because they they you sort of get a bit of hulk in endgame and it doesn't appear throughout and i was expecting something from this and what i got was a big green banner and i didn't like it i honestly didn't that i always find that the hulk is always best when he's either literally his own character that is from inside banner with his own motivations and thoughts and feelings planet hulk is a great example of that whereas this one just felt like it's didn't feel particularly special it just literally felt like it's a big green banner and i was really really disappointed by that and it felt like he he was only big green banner so at the end he could do the snap aside from that i that was the biggest disappointment for me in this film was that i didn't get well i sort of did get hulk when they time traveled but hulk wasn't there hulk didn't get his rematch with thanos and yeah it, it left me feeling disappointed but if I'm going to take a positive from anything, looking at the way that they they did um, Green... I don't know. He's not Professor Green, which is an evil version, which would be kind of interesting. I'm more hopeful that they might be able to pull off a She-Hulk. I really want my She-Hulk movie, as Alex is well aware. Same. Same, oh, me yeah. too. We were, we were talking about casting possibilities the other day, and um, who did we say? Kate McKinnon was my number one. Mm. Someone who's naturally funny. Yes, I could see that. I could see her pulling that role off. Fantastic! I said, if I have a negative, I was just so disappointed in what they did to Hulk. They seem to be constantly nerfing him, because like with Thor Ragnarok, they they literally grew him to be to show that he had a personality outside of Banner. He was his own person in essence, and that sort of all gets robbed away when you get Big Green Banner. Because every time that it was sort of cut to him, 
there didn't seem to be a reason for him to be Hulk. He's either trying to do the time travel scene with, uh, with Ant-Man where you get baby Ant-Man, or he's talking to the ancient one. It feels like he's only sort of the Hulk there just so he can survive doing the snap. And I felt really disappointed by that. Karen Nagisa. So I mentioned this before during the uh, Ragnarok episode, which, listeners, if you haven't heard that, you should absolutely listen to the School of the Movies Ragnarok episode. We had a lot of fun with that one. But the Hulk is essentially a new person in Ragnarok. You see him with his bed that's made out of a jawbone of some big animal. It's like a race car bed for the Hulk. By this movie, he's grown up quite a bit. He's had more experience. In fact, he's had about, you know, four to five years worth of experience, depending on when Banner managed to kind of blend the two of them. But the thing is that there's a certain sense of being a teenager about him in the same way that Shazam, Captain Sparklefingers, felt like a teenager at times, even though, you know, in a bigger body. Uh, Bruce matures him... But there's still that sense, there's, you know, times when he's being sulky or times when, you know, when he's, you know, really just embracing the sort of YouTube star that he has become. You know, everybody's a Hulk fan now. Everybody say green. It works really well as uh, bringing his arc from the past few movies all together where we get to see him think that he has everything to control, but even then, there's some feelings that he hasn't really reckoned with, and the Hulk part of him is not really mature enough to fully embrace and process those. So what you have is a lot of scenes where he doesn't exactly know what he's feeling and we can tell as the audience plus there's also a lot of tension there we are so familiar with the hulk that again with the whole uh, taking a picture scene i really expected him to hulk out when they were arguing over whether to take a picture with ant-man and you know there the scene the tension in that scene was so well done and so well managed I thought he was going to lose it, and he didn't, but I genuinely thought he was. I was tensed the entire time, which again tells us a lot about how the character has adapted and evolved. Plus, I like that he still has feelings for Matt, but he knows that that can't go anywhere, that too much has happened, too many things have changed. It becomes very clear, uh, and that's partially Ruffalo's performance, and that's Johansson's performance for that matter but also the writing on it. It was good to see Banner having, you know, and the Hulk having been humbled in Infinity War and come out better, but not, still not quite there. He has places to go. Scott Lang, Brendan. So one of the things that I've always liked about Scott's use with the MCU movies is he's the guy who knows how to lose the um, the, the first damn in movie it's after he's already like lost a bunch of he lost his marriage his livelihood he, he lost years with his daughter um, we constantly see Scott having to deal with losing in a way that 
even Thor hasn't had to like Thor will lose people in his life, but he'll always be able to like save the day. He'll be able to save the people of Asgard. Captain America lays down his life, but he does it knowing that he's saving all of the cities that would have been bombed by those bombs. Scott's just really used to losing. And one of the things that I think really works about his use in Endgame particularly is that he's he's able to bring that experience and be like, look, just because you lost doesn't mean that you can't still come back from it in some way. The Russos that were really smart about this uh, in in Civil War, they refer to Scott and Spider-Man as ringers that cap and tony both bring two ringers to the airport that you wouldn't expect to be like these these huge tide turners in in that particular fight but they really are they they have this massive effect on everything scott is like the emotional ringer for endgame he's the one who gets everything kicking i would have liked to see a little bit more time with him and cassie like once the uh, uh the time jump happens i i love the thought of having to kind of like catch up uh, with your kid that way, but he's in an interesting place compared to where Tony is because they both have kids. They've both lost something, but Scott reacts very differently. He's not selfish in the way that Tony still kind of is. Uh, he's not despairing in the way that Clint is. Uh, so he's this odd middle point between those two other father figures and he ends up being sort of almost this like secret sauce that bounces off so many of these other characters in incredibly fun ways, as well as driving the film dramatically. Like they have this very fun tonal choice where you've just got him like hanging out, trying to eat a taco (laughs) and he just can't eat that taco because there's spaceships landing and, and like people in these military tech suits, like stomping around. He's just like, I just wanted this taco. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's also just like this, this grounding, like humanistic, idealism that he brings to the table even though he's really not equipped like intellectually to figure this stuff out he's the smartest person in terms of what needs to be done because it's like no guys this is this is a heist movie we need to we need to cheat we we basically need to cheat in order to win i mean even even captain america ends up like getting a little bit of that i mean steve is is a lot less upright and lawful good than he is in Avengers. We get to see that a little bit. And part of that's Tony, but I think part of that's also just like hanging out with people who just like steal stuff. And then, you know what, we have to cut a couple corners here. And so I, I think that Scott ends up having just like this kind of unexpected, but very profound effect on the rest of the team, as well as just Paul Rudd being a very gifted comedian and helping to land a lot of those, those big laughs that infinity war didn't, quite have and endgame really really needed to help bring you back from that tragedy jesse he's always been kind of the grounding force he's been the the most human character of anybody else in the mcu and i think that really comes through here in in any other movie scott would be the audience's point of view character here because he's the one who's just come into this environment he's he knows the least about it everyone's always trying having to explain things to him but because we the audience already know most of that it basically has the effect of endearing him to us rather than use that as a source of exposition because they just keep it in like one or two lines as a way of reminding us that oh yeah scott hasn't been here for all this time uh, i also thought it was really neat 
the way, uh, like Brendan said, Scott is the one who knows how to lose better than anybody else. But in this movie, he's the first person who absolutely refuses to lose. And it could be because he just got back and he hasn't had that five years of space that everybody else has. But to see that turn around and for him to be the one that says we can't just give up, we can't stop, we have to do something, I thought was a a nice turn. I agree the way that he handled the the loss of family or the the dynamic his family dynamic is very different from everybody else's in this movie where you know you have tony on the one side who built a family out of the ashes of this catastrophe uh well no pun intended but i'll take it and then on the opposite extreme of that you have clint who lost everything and fell into this tragic rage cycle then you have you have scott in the middle who lost a fair amount of his family but also has you know gained some family in the sense that his his family is completely transformed and he has to make sense of that he has to get to know his daughter again after after five years and I, I agree. I would like to have seen a little bit more of that develop. I realized that there was no way to that there was no time for that. I mean, unless maybe we make a few fewer fat Thor jokes, but he really served to ground us and ground everything in this this emotional maturity that he brings to the table that a lot of the other characters don't have. What you said about um, Scott missing Cassie growing up. Fuck. He was in prison when she went from a little tiny girl to a slightly bigger girl, and it was some key years that he missed. And then he's in prison again. He just doesn't realize that he's, he's there for five hours, and then just, boom, she's five years older. And they both bounce back from it. That's an incredibly tender scene. Um, but he's missed so much of Cassie's life now. And that, look you how can't get that back. Oh, the, the line, yeah. look how big you've gotten it. It's played as a, a bit of a joke, but also like, I mean, I've been there for every day of Marion's life and I still can't believe that she's like walking and talking and having conversations and tea parties. And it's like, I, I can't even fathom what it would be like to just have these huge blanks between two and five or five and 10 or 10 and 15 or. Yeah, I, I can't even, I can't even wrap my brain around that. Note to self, rewatch this movie once I've uh, aged a bit and had a family so that I can get even more upset by it. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, it's great. Oh, you, you won't be a sobbing wreck at all. Mm-hmm. Take some I, I know I will be. Karu yeah. <sighs> Nagisa on Rocket Raccoon. Rocket Raccoon has been on this emotional journey since the first Guardians movies. That I think it's largely overlooked because Bradley Cooper is funny and he has big guns and says flarking occasionally and steals batteries he doesn't need to. But really when it comes down to it, Rocket Raccoon is one of the most mature adult characters in this. In the sense that he goes from this cynical, tortured, really just downtrodden guy... And by the time we get to here to Endgame, he is a genuine leader. He knows how to get people to 
go the way that he wants to when they're not, you know, suffering from PTSD and desperate to see their mom. He always knew how to plan. I mean, that was just one of his things. But also he, when we first see him in the first Guardians, he's got this very loner type attitude because he thinks that everybody's laughing at him. He thinks that everybody is pitying him in some respect. And that's because he pities himself. I mean, I don't know how the MCU does his backstory or if they're even going to bother with it. In the comics, he was genetically engineered uh, to be the security of a planet, an asylum planet called Half-World. Because the people who were actually supposed to run it were so lazy that it was easier to genetically engineer animals to run the place than to just run the asylum. That's how lazy they were. He was made for a certain purpose, and he has given up on that purpose, so he felt like he had no purpose. Uh, Groot was his only connection to anything, and even that was somewhat tenuous. By the time we get to Endgame, this guy is making teams and families left and right. Like, everywhere he goes, he knows how to get a group of people to coalesce around an idea, and move them out if anything yeah i loved seeing natasha running the avengers but i kind of wanted to see what rocket was doing during all of that as well because i'm sure that he was probably doing very similar i think probably the shot that i love the most in the movie is when nebula is sitting down feeling miserable and he walks over to her and does the same thing to her that drax did to him which was reach out a hand to create contact she jumps for a second and then settles down and just accepts it. He has moved from being the one who needs emotional support to the one who is capable of giving it. And I love seeing that about him. And again, I wish that we had sort of a little bit more, more attention on what has become of Rocket over the past several movies, that he's no longer the guy that steals batteries, he doesn't have to. He's the guy who forges these family ties because he knows that we're better when we have them. Okay, so <laughs> next up we got Brendan on Pepper Potts. Oh god, this is going to slay me. I'm going to have to mute my... I mean, I've been muting myself a lot, but now I'm going to have to mute myself for weeping. So, yeah, no uh, kidding. Okay. Uh, Brendan, yeah, if I, you will. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you, you know, um, you know, like, uh, hi, uh, family, I'm going to go off and, and leave my daughter and go to have this experience, and, and immediately you're slammed with family feelings, specifically daughter feelings. This, this movie is not nice to, to, to people who have kids, especially lady kids. Um, but yeah, so Pepper Potts... I really I really appreciate that they brought her back in a big way that almost single-handedly addresses the the I guess Adrian Balboa issue that she had been in danger of slipping into in that Pepper Paws is this really great character and after a certain point due to you know availability and and all this stuff you you get to a point where she's functionally in danger of just being the Adrian to Tony Stark's Rocky. And that's 
obviously a you know a problem that we we don't want to see um, affect her character, considering how impressive she can be. But with this particular film, I really wanted to see her get the chance to to do for Tony what like he's kind of done for everyone else. And when she tells him he can rest, because she's been trying to get him to lay things down, and she ends up being the one to say, but can you really stop right now? Can you really do it at the beginning of the film? And she knows exactly what she's doing. There's a there's a part of this character who, especially once she sees him in the armor that first time in the first Iron Man film, she knows deep down, I'm probably going to watch this man die. And she sees him suffer his greatest defeat and still be there for for her and their daughter in a way that was almost like cheating death. And then she essentially has to to do the same thing that that Leia does with Han in The Force Awakens is she says to him, there's still like one more thing we have to do, but I don't know if everyone's going to make it through this. And getting to see them have that, those dual moments, both at home and then on the battlefield where one is a dramatic moment, one is an action moment, but they're both absolutely supporting each other, you know, whether they're back-to-back shooting lasers or on the couch having this heart-to-heart discussion and then she's finally the one who tells him you're finally finished you can rest it it made me realize that it's been something that she's kind of been arcing toward ever since iron man 2 when he on a whim gives her the company and she takes that over for him we we see pepper just doing more and more to try and and help him stop overburdening himself. Um, and at and at the end of the film, she ends up finally telling him he can rest, but she's going to have to take over the biggest burden of all because she's going to be she's going to be a single mom. And she she tells him the lie that we always tell people when we're about to lose them. She tells him that we're going to be okay because maybe they will someday but they're not right then and it's not going to be anytime soon but he he really needed to hear that before he could finally let go and before he could finally rest and Gwyneth Paltrow just absolutely slays that moment Maya Santandrea. I've really liked Gamora's journey from when we first saw her in Guardians of the Galaxy, which that movie was such a surprise to me when I first saw it. It it was so different from anything we had seen up until that point, and she was such a great character. I really enjoyed her right from the start, and to see her journey from that to Guardians 2 to Infinity War, and this version of Gamora really, really bothered me. Um, 
I, and this kind of feeds into some of the main issues again, the, the really like with reservations, this was one of the big reservations for me. I had major problems with the fact that the version of Gamora we end up with has not had any of the character development that she had with Nebula over the first two Guardians movies, hasn't experienced any of those moments with Quill, hasn't gone through any of the things with Thanos that we saw in Infinity War. Pretty much all of that has been has been taken out of her experience. And again, completely understand why it was like in the in the course of how this film played out, it had to go this way. There's no way they were going to get around having a different version of Gamora if that's the direction they were going to go. But it does mean that she doesn't have any of those experiences. And it makes me feel very odd about how they're going to deal with that moving forward. Uh, it, it almost feels like her character was robbed of those memories and robbed of those experiences and those wonderful moments. Some of the best filmmaking in any of these movies, I thought was when she had her final scene with Thanos in infinity war, right before he collects the soul stone. And now that's not there for her anymore. And at first I didn't really know how to feel about it. And then the more I thought about it, the more I felt really bummed out and really disappointed that she wasn't going to be able to have that. It's going to be, uh, I don't know. I don't really know uh, if I'm, if I'm excited to see where they go with her character from here, but I can't help but feel like, God, what a shame that this is the Gamora that we end up with who hasn't been through all of that. And she basically has to start over now. Uh, I I really did not enjoy that aspect of her character. I'm glad that she's back for sure, but it's, it's not the same. And it, yeah, it just left me with a bad taste in my mouth. So sorry to come down on the negative side of things, but that was one part of this movie that really, really bothered me. I think for me, I actually, similarly to what I said about Natasha and one of the big points of her story in this being that other people love her and value her enough for her to be worth the trade. The fact that Gamora now has two people, at least, who love her enough to comb the galaxy for her. Nebula and Quill are now actively looking to find this version of Gamora and bring her back into their family. And that made me feel very hopeful that we will see her again, albeit not in the same form and the same level of evolution that she'd got up to. But a little part of me was actually moderately grateful for that because it means that she doesn't, she won't have the memory of all of that trauma that she went through, having to ask Peter to shoot her, having to you know being sacrificed by Thanos I know it's cold comfort but I did feel that it was a little bit of comfort for me I do completely understand if it wasn't for other people but it was for me something just occurred to me in the edit and I didn't mention this on the night when we recorded but what Maya was saying about 
Gamora effectively being robbed of the memories that she's had with this team with the Guardians. The Guardians have form for one of their number dying and then being able to carry on in a more innocent, less experienced version. Gamora's done a Groot. As we established way back in 2014, Baby Groot isn't a replica of Groot with all of his memories. He's Groot's son. And while this is obviously a much closer version to the one we lost, Gamora Prime, if you will, she is, symbolically speaking, Gamora's daughter. Given a new life, a second chance, an ability to go out into the universe and influence things. Perhaps learning from the mistakes of her quote-unquote mother. It's hokey, but I like symbolism. Debbie Morse, talking here about both Nebula and Gamora. It's even more encouraging that they choose to make, they choose that between the two of them. In spite of everything, and they choose to work together and to fight their father. And I, I love, love that. Love, love that. The, it's such a beautiful relationship. And I, I would love to see a scene where the two of them get to have some downtime and, you know, get to go have a girl's night or, I, I don't know, go see a movie together or something. But something where, you know, you can just, they can just be girls. And I, I would love that. And on Jim Rhodes. I think he got the most screen time in this movie that we've ever seen him get in any movie. He was very much a side character, but he, he still felt like part of the team. And he's, it very much feels to me like he is a disabled character who who gets, you know, he's got full agency and, you know, you see him in the one scene when, you know, after that, after Thanos shows up and they had bombed the building that they were in, so he's crawling, but it, it did feel very much like he had a right to be there, he, he was comfortable there, he deserved to be there, and that, I think that says a lot. on Cassie Lang and Hope Van Dyne. I adored seeing Cassie in this, not only because, again, as a comic fan, I hope that the MCU version of her becomes Stature, uh, who's a superhero that has pin particles in her heart so she can grow and shrink at will and she doesn't be a suit or anything. It's really kind of cool. The scene between when Scott realizes that something's something's up here and goes running to her and she's there. I had a moment, I wasn't sure what was going to happen, uh, especially since I remember how Ant-Man ended. And it didn't show her specifically, but it also didn't show 
anybody at the house. So my heart was in my throat. Her and Hope, um, as support for Scott, works so well because it lets Scott shine a little bit in the sense that alone, he, especially among the Avengers, he's just a fanboy. But with them, he's part of a unit and he's part of, he has people there that respect him and that he feels comfortable around so he can be a little bit more him. But also we get to see, you know, how incredibly badass Hope is and how well they work together. And, you know, as much as in Ant-Man and the Wasp, where we saw a little bit, of, where we saw a lot of that, we still got a little bit, bit of that in here. And I, I, it was just amazing to see. Do you want to go on Carol Danvers? Yeah. <laughs> I Big surprise here. That this was the one you picked. <laughs> this, this was really interesting, actually, because... Oh, interesting. No, no, no. Are you going to expand on that? I am. Okay, it I'm was... starting the clock. No. Okay. It was interesting for me in the sense that I went into this with, in my head, that Carol was going to be the big saviour, that Carol was going to be the big gun that came in, got the gauntlet, smashed up Thanos, and it was all going to be yay! And that's not what happened. And as I gradually started to realise that that wasn't going to be what happened, I thought that that would have left me feeling disappointed. But it didn't, because there wasn't room for any disappointment, because there was so much else in the film that I was embracing and emotionally engaging with. That said, the handful of moments that Carol had, I loved every single one. Every time she turned up on screen, I was doing little internal yay. But I could completely understand why they didn't simply bring her into clean house. Because if they had, then you you've lost well not lost necessarily but you've kind of if you use her up too soon she's she's new meat new meat that's a terrible way of putting it new blood new blood thank you sorry that's the, that is the phrase i was actually looking for i don't know where it got meat from <laughs> sorry brie i think i was thinking fresh meat and then it all went that's wrong. even worse i know <laughs> she's new blood and she's going to be the backbone of whatever the MCU films do going forwards. Can we put it on pause for one moment? Yeah. Regarding her cleaning up, um, when she grabs the gauntlet, when you watch it two and then three times, a little part of me was going, why doesn't she just put the gauntlet on? She's more powerful than Hulk. It won't kill her. It'll hurt her, but she can undo this rather than trying to get it to the time tunnel in this weed van that Thanos is now very worried about. Um, like, put on the gauntlet and unfuck this Carol. And then I thought, hang on a second. She could just have flown in there, cleaned his clock, put on the gauntlet and snapped it. And I realized that there's another film that does that. It's 
Justice League. They can't beat Steppenwolf. And then Superman turns up and goes, I got this. And then cleans his clock and just destroys Steppenwolf. They make a play at the end of going, oh, yeah, Wonder Woman, you know, do you want to, like, make it look like you kind of did something to defeat this guy? And then it turns out the B-police are... Uh, really interfere so they'll swarm him if he feels scared which is a really terrible army because like that is a very easy exploit you just you know put on scary masks and then the 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 general goes oh i didn't expect it oh shit ah my own bee police are attacking me okay but superman at the end of that film makes the rest of the league completely redundant so if you want to be like totally practical about it and why didn't captain marvel just save the day because it's fucking boring what she does is level the playing field thanos is such a poor loser that as soon as wanda starts to kick his ass and rightfully so he goes i'm losing fuck it bomb them from orbit and they had no way of uh, counteracting that so carol turns up to even the playing fields So it's actually absolutely right and proper that she can just give them the chance that they need. Mm. Also, she levels the playing field. She then takes the ball and runs the playing field. And I, this, this moment was just so filled with joy for me because the fact that you had this, the, the ladies' team stepped up and turned this final battle, which could so easily have have descended into what so many people criticise superhero films and action films generally for, which is that it's just shooty-shooty-bang-bang and it's all explosions and it doesn't really mean anything. And instead, they had the biggest game of keep-away in the universe. (laughs) And just, again, I'm quiet in the cinema because I'm a good girl, but my internal roar... (laughs) was loud (laughs) and very happy. It's like being married to Santiago. (laughs) Hey, I'd have been dancing if there was space. (laughs) My internal role was, where's my A-Force movie? I need it now. Put it in my eye. Yes. (laughs) Yes, please. That um, she has help moment. Uh, I, I was stricken by uh, by two contradictory feelings, one of which almost cancelled out the other. One was just sheer joy of, yes, yes, this is them as they mean to go on. This is a statement. Like Black Panther, like Captain Marvel. She has help. And the other one was, cry, hate boys, cry! This was a shot designed to make you shit your pants in rage. And they did. I actually saw somebody talking about this scene and and apparently they were in two minds about whether or not they were going to put it in there and then all these comments underneath about well you know I just thought it was pandering what the hell really how do you have anything against this it's just we know exactly how unbridled enthusiasm just go away for the same reasons that The Force Awakens The Last Jedi Black Panther and Captain Marvel were the ones that were specifically targeted with review bombing campaigns. Ooh, I know. That's... But I don't care. I'm not on Twitter right now because I don't want to hear what these shit weasels have to say. And now I don't have to. So I feel yep, better for I'm that. I'm the same as you. <laughs> Indeed. But the, the key thing for Carol for me was that she was being lined up to take over from... Steve and be the new captain moving forwards. And I loved the fact that she had her moment of interaction with Peter. Hey, Peter Parker. Who is... You got something for me? Who is <laughs> the replacement for Iron Man? Yeah. 
going forward. And the dynamic's completely different between them. They're kind of... We've said this before. Iron Man, Cap, uh, Captain America, Thor have been kind of combined and then divided amongst mm. the new blood. you got Black Panther uh, and uh, Captain Marvel and Spider-Man and Doctor Strange all share elements and qualities. They do, they do. Of all of them. But there is an element of the dynamic between... Steve and Tony, and that there was a little whisper of between Carol and Peter here, and that is the older sibling, little sibling. Hmm. Because Tony and Steve, there's always been that underpinning feeling that Tony's had that Steve is his big brother that Daddy liked best. Hmm. And they worked that through and they, they resolved that. He made it for you. Yeah. And that moment of, you got something for me, it really felt like she was his big sister. Because Peter's going to be lost for a little while. He's... The, the echoes of this, he's been missing for five years. The world has changed considerably. And while there are a lot of people in his life from the trailer of of, uh, Far From Home, who have also been missing for five years, so they're picking up in the same place as he does. There are also people who who he's lost five years of their life. I think May was probably still around. So she'll have lost him for five years and he'll be missing that piece of her life. And he's going to have to try and put his mission together himself now without Tony who he was leaning on very hard as a mentor as a uh, a boss as somebody who was telling him what he needed to do next we saw that in civil war and for him to have carol there as potentially this older sibling who can give him that little bit of guidance is something I am really excited to see. And now I really want to see Far From Home. May lived. May lived, you're absolutely right, which means that she had to lose Ben Mm -hmm. and then she had to lose Peter. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll talk about that in a few uh, months' time with uh, Far From Home. Now, I have a special piece here by Alistair Stewart, whom you may remember guested on our Pacific Rim and Sneakers shows. He is from escapeartists.net, and these are his words on the final moments between Sam Wilson, Bucky Barnes, and Steve Rogers. It's called The Men by the Lake. I saw Endgame last night, and the final half hour is basically an up-level assault on your emotions, just with way more punching and as guardians. But the moment that really hits hard comes right at the very end. There's no explosions, no last-minute gambits. It's just three men by a lake. The first is Bucky, Captain America's boyfriend-slash-sidekick-slash-successor, depending on where you stand. Buck doesn't get much to do here, and there's been some criticism of him being sidelined. Where every other character reaches either peace with themselves or a perfect bow-out, Captain America's sidekick is... still that. He watches the passing of the torch from a distance, not even acknowledged by his oldest friend. Except, watch the scene again, 
and it becomes clear Bucky knows far more about what's going on than anyone notices. He has obviously figured out Steve isn't coming back from the past, and lets him go. He knows who the man by the lake is long before Sam sees him. He knows what's about to happen, and he's fine with it. Whether that's because, like Elliot Spencer in Leverage, he's at equilibrium with being damned, or whether it's just because he's happy for his friend, doesn't matter. Bucky, one of the two men out of time, is finally comfortable where he is. On Captain America's left. Then there's Steve himself. There's a delightful, and probably incorrect, rumour that the original plan was that this was to have been Stan Lee's final cameo. Steve's long way round return to the 21st century, having taken in stop-offs at every movie along the way. On the one hand, what a graceful, gentle bow that would have been on 22 movies of cameos. On the other, it would have denied Evans this moment, and Chris Evans saves some of his best work for old Steve Rogers. There's something defiant almost impish about him at the lake. He's delighted that he's got here, overjoyed that his friend gets a turn, and almost as pleased that he gets to mess with him just a little first. Most of all, he's an old soldier who's realised, at last, he can stand down. I couldn't help but think of Tim O'Brien's going after Cacciato and the things they carried, books concerned with the burdens of the Vietnam War. So much of this scene is about Steve putting the soldier's burden down, and doing so in a completely non-fussy way. There's no ceremony here, no pomp and circumstance, his watch is over, and so Captain America does the one thing he's never done before. Something for himself. Or to put it another way, Captain America disappears into the past. Steve Rogers sits at the lake and waits for his friends in the present. And of course, this moment takes place by a lakeside, these characters have superhero code names, but all three of these men are knights at heart. Which brings us to Sam Wilson, a man so fundamentally decent and kind that his first words when he's visited in prison in Civil War are to ask how his last opponent is. Even here you see it, where he instinctively treats Steve like a patient. Ask what happened, see how he is, let him speak, just like Steve himself does with the therapy group at the start of the movie. Captain America, reminding himself how to be a good man by emulating one of the people who taught him, and the man who will succeed him. The same tune, played in a different key. And then Steve hands over the shield, and it's Anthony Mackie's turn to hand in his best work. He perfectly captures Sam's combination of dawning realisation, deliberate ignorance, and sudden, almost crushing honour. You can see him stand a little straighter when he puts the shield on, just like when Peter is knighted by Tony in Infinity War. You can hear the strain in his voice when he promises to do his best and see the unfettered joy and pride on Steve's face when he accepts. Captain America stands down. Captain America rises up. On your left no longer. Go get him, Sam. Okay. Uh, 
Now we're going to talk about these mechan- these particular mechanics of time travel and what this movie could entail for the future of the MCU. But since this could get quite rambly and speculative, I'm going to make that a Patreon bonus episode. It's over an hour of jibber jabber, all about time travel and what Marvel are doing next and other stupid shit we just want to talk about. Here's a clip. The multiverse thing we've pretty well established. We don't have to define that. Essentially, you know, any time a decision has to be made or the outcome can be different, the universe splits and we have then multiple realities, one for each outcome. So if we talk about our prime, our timeline as being the prime timeline, mm-hmm. whenever they jump back into the same timeline, and that's a silly but important distinction, it causes a split. They've just made and released the most successful movie of all time. A year ago, they had maybe the fifth most successful film of all time, like a really incredibly successful. When you've got a reliable series, you can make sure that you get that much money coming in, you keep your shareholders happy, and you can like keep a state of annual growth. But look at it like this. Disney have said... After episode nine, we've got like nothing particularly planned in terms of Star Wars. Obviously they have, but it's all very much kind of nebulous. We'll talk about that later. And in the same way with Marvel, it's like, yeah, we've got to the end of Endgame and we've got this Spider-Man film coming up, but then there's this, this emptiness. One, did anyone else see the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer? Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> what? Of course what I did. What the living fuck is that what? thing? Oh what? my god. Oh my god. Listen. And that bonus episode of Cutting Class Avengers Endgame will be available to all our $5 patrons on their special bonus Patreon feed. You can download that straight to your phone this weekend. And if you're a $15 patron, you get sponsorship credit every episode. You're a top tier patron. Thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Tyler Long, long-time listener, first-time $15 patron, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finn Barnicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Does anyone have any other business on the character development and events of Endgame? If you want to just say any bit that you loved, say it now. It's a free-for-all. Go for it. You've all been very good. (laughs) There was one scene that nobody's talked about yet uh, that was just really – it was such a quiet and yet powerful moment for me. And that was when we see Tony in the kitchen and – he looks up and you see the picture of his dad and then he goes to reach up and he reaches past that photo mm-hmm. and picks up the one of him and Peter. Mm-hmm. And yes. like that just that hit me really hard. The the sense that his the loss of his son figure was the one that he hadn't gotten over yet, that 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 was the one that he was still reeling from even after all this time. That was one of the first times that the room got dusty for me. Mm. Not the first, because that was, you know, 30 seconds in, but it was the second or third. I want to talk just a quick second about uh, Peter and Gamora and how they're moving forward and that we have both mentioned this or we've all mentioned this one way or another. But 
I understand the trailers for Homecoming so much better now where Peter is just like totally unwilling to be a superhero anymore because that boy has more trauma than is reasonable for anyone that age. And I am really interested to see how that gets addressed. And I'm Mm -hmm. even more interested in seeing what Guardians of the Galaxy looks like with a Gamora who is essentially completely different. And I'm just amazed that Endgame has made me even more excited from these movies than I was to begin with. I feel like they might be able to turn Gamora into the Letty of this series. Ooh. Okay, mm. that could be that could be from good. like from Fast and the Furious uh, where she comes back, you know, two or three movies in with no memory of what happened before and it's about her coming to terms with this family that has already accepted her and loves her but that she doesn't understand yet. I think there's there's some room for some really neat stuff there. Oh, and one more other quick thing. I like how many young characters there are set up that he clearly has special abilities at this point, and I fully expect there to be some kind of, I don't know, Young Avengers-esque thing coming up in the next... Mm-hmm. And that yes. makes me so excited. Yes. I want Peter to hang out with Shuri, to hang out with uh, Clint's daughter, to like hang out with Scott Lang's daughter, Cassie, and I just want them to all be doing cool things as teenagers and having a lot of drama. I'm so excited to see Peter lose his mind the first time he steps into Shuri's lab. Oh, I want it. Oh, yes. I want it. Yes. Oh, and also, maybe Kamala Khan. Oh, <laughs> that please. would be great. I was, I was really hoping we'd see something, like, just a picture or something, some indication of Kamala here. I understand why we didn't, but I... I was really hoping for that going into it. But if Captain Marvel is like going to be Peter Parker's like big sister and then Kamala becomes Peter's friend who is weirdly obsessed with his big sister. I'm very good with this. (laughs) She's going to end up being a den mother, isn't she? Yeah. Oh, jeez. She already she set, settled into the world where she's like really calm about the fact that I have these priorities. Mm-hmm. I got to get this shit done. I got to get this shit done. I can't do all of it. She's not running herself mm-hmm. ragged like Tony and Steve. She knows how to delegate. Hmm. Um, Bob Chipman described her as a a hard ass military person who delivers all of her lines like a hyper aware kindergarten teacher. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's <laughs> brilliant. Oh my god! And it's. It's it's a it's a sort of like dynamic that we haven't seen before, and it would be really great for a, you know, kind of den mother esque, but not an a. We're putting you in the box of being the mom of the group mm-hmm. still. Um, to to bring it back to what um what Alistair actually said, um, talking about the men by the lake, this next generation, um, and the way that they've de- sort of set it up with this handoff, I've sort of like tossed around the idea that the MCU is probably the best on-screen version of the Arthurian legends in a way that we've ever seen. Mm. Um, And, you know, I I could even draw parallels to who's Arthur, who's Lancelot. Um, Scott Lang is totally Percival, of course, but totally, but that, that particular, that particular dynamic really gets drawn into focus in this movie and the way it reflects back on the other films, because you realize that the battle of New York was like, that was their, their shining perfect victory and then everything else since then has been them realizing that they're only human, that, you know, that Lancelot is in love with Guinevere and it's going to, you know, bring everything down somehow. But they still have to rally for this one final 
glorious moment where they where they recapture what made them a, a pantheon or or a round table in the first place. And the way Endgame does that, specifically by name checking the Battle of New York by going there and doing the Back to the Future two thing even better than Back to the Future did. As someone who lives and breathes things like the Arthurian legends, that made me deliriously happy. Mm. I will say as well, the idea of the hyper-efficient kindergarten teacher, there is a pre-echo of that, and that's how Peggy deals with the the GIs. No, when she first shows up and they're all cracking wise with her. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, kindergarten teachers don't punch their charges, but you know. <laughs> but the, that whole thing of of being this um, the the person who these guys don't expect to be able to corral them, mm-hmm. and having to demonstrate that she can, and I can see Carol running with off, flying with that, if you will. Did anybody else pick up on? I didn't. Alex had to point this one out to me. But when they're panning over the funeral, uh, as they move back. I can't remember who it goes from, Bucky and uh, Sam. There's a young man standing behind mm-hmm. them. Harley. And Harley. Harley. Yep. Yes. Yeah. The Iron Man 3, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. young mechanic. Yeah. Who, yeah, I yeah. caught that, but I didn't know who it was until my fiancé told me, and then yeah. I was all well, choked up sa- about it. It's the same actor. <laughs> yeah, he just looks look totally mm-hmm. different. And, uh, mm-hmm. well, I think a lot of people would be like, did Tony Stark have an illegitimate son? <laughs> and like, hilarious though that may be, like, he, he's kind of the prototype of what Peter Parker eventually became. Like, mm-hmm. they, they, they played around with that relationship because at the time they didn't have Peter to, uh, to, right. to, to do that with. And I just, I love the fact that he, you know, that that, that was part of the journey mm. that, that Harley was there. Yeah, but I just, I, I now have this idea of Peter and Shuri and Cassie and Harley working together and making space for Morgan when she's old enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Rai Rai. I do think that's something this film gets right because this was one of the most satisfying films I've actually seen in a long time. This yeah. left me feeling so satisfied. But, I mean, we've just spent, I don't know how many hours talking about the main cast... Yeah, and I can't call them cameos, but the side characters that come back also helps make that satisfying good. And the fact that they bring everybody back and give them something. It was, like, hilarious to see hippie Hank Pym in the, in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. one thing that I, I caught at the end of that when Tony's dad goes to his car, it's Jarvis yeah. from the TV series. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. thought, yep. oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a nice touch to have Jarvis in there, though. That was really yeah. cool. Yeah. I found I had quite a few reservations about Endgame. Just overall, I didn't think it was as cohesive as Infinity War. However, I will give it this. Like, I think my reservations and the moments I really loved kind of balance each other out. And I think it's to the credit of these filmmakers and everyone involved that when they start to open up all the portals... And, and like, when I first saw Black Panther come through, mm-hmm. I knew that moment was coming. I absolutely knew it was coming. And I still got mm-hmm. chills and goosebumps. I was like, yes! Oh, my God, he's back. Like, I still got so pumped for that moment, even though I knew it was going to happen. Um, so for them to, you know, I've, I, you know, from working on it, I pretty much have everything spoiled. And knowing what I did to still be able to get that sort of response, I think, is is a credit to how well this worked overall, just how well the, the overarching 
story with all the characters worked. And it, these folks, you know, as as much as they may have stumbled along the way, and as much as I think there were some some pitfalls with Endgame overall, these folks know what they're doing, and I hope that they. I really hope that they continue with a lot of the creative team that they have. I know a lot of people are going to be dropping off from this point going forward, but they've done such a tremendous job with so many different characters and so many different films. It would be like all the things that you mentioned with the young Avengers. And if they can incorporate some of the characters from the Fox properties and Sony that they haven't really been able to work with yet. I really hope that they'll continue going in the creative direction that they have because they're doing some really good things and you know to to get someone and 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 even my screening of this was with people who worked on the movie it was a cast and crew screening so everybody knew it was going to happen so to have a whole audience full of people getting so excited for all the big moments when they knew they were coming that's a testament to how well they've put together these films yeah. There's a web series, uh, a YouTube film analysis series called The Take. I don't know if anybody's seen that before, but they described this movie as the harvest of all the seeds that they had planted throughout the last 22 movies. And I thought that was really appropriate. And the fact that they were able to cultivate those seeds really well, even little tiny stuff like did anybody notice that in Civil War and again in Spider-Man Homecoming, Tony was futzing with his right arm for no reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we get to see that reason now and the fact that they were able to set all this stuff up so far ahead of time, even just little things like that is just a triumph. One of the hottest takes I have is that uh, Age of Ultron is better than most people give it credit for. And the, <laughs> the way that Endgame makes Age of Ultron as well as Thor the Dark World, one of the like pillars of the most important moments of the MCU is absolutely uh, vindicating in that. The, the, everything to do with Hawkeye's family on the farm, I've always loved, but this really makes that just matter um, a little bit more. And just in terms of, of how it works as an overall sort of saga, I, I don't know that you know watching from Iron Man to Endgame works as the Infinity Saga as a whole cohesive story um, because, of course, they were kind of making it up as they went along, which is why it worked. They were able to take what worked and drop what didn't. However, I will say that I've watched Infinity War a shocking number of times in the past week, kind of almost on accident, and the way Infinity War and Endgame work is like a a a five-and-a-half-hour epic is really impressive. Uh, I, I can see why they were initially conceived of as a, a as a part one, part two, and I think they work as two separate films. But just going back and revisiting Infinity War and how it matters in Endgame, just just the fact that everyone, you know, was unsure of like the snap mattering. And even though everyone who got snapped came back, just the elegance of the five year gap giving consequence to that, even though they're alive, it's like, yeah, you're alive, but everything is still different. Um, just little little moments and touches like that, um, they do make me appreciate what the Russos have brought. And definitely, I, I like my. I really hope that uh, Marcus and McFeely are still in some capacity helping with a couple of these movies because they've they've done a hell of a job since 2011. 
Okay, so before we go, where can people find your stuff? We will start with Mackenzie. All right, I'm on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix, and I'm the host of the Rainbow Connection podcast and the upcoming video game, the movie, the podcast. And it'll all be on the Twitter. Brendan. Yes, I'm on Twitter at BLC Agnew. You can also read stuff that I write at normannerd.blogspot.com, and I occasionally contribute to synapse.co. That's C I N A P S E.co. Neil. You can find me along with my friend Jerome over at the Gameverse podcast, uh, where we talk about video gaming news on a Sunday and a roundtable topic discussion on a Thursday. Jerome. I'm over at Gameburst, and you can find me on Twitter as at JeromeMCI. Caro and Debbie. You can find us at sequentially-yours.com. And you can find us on Twitter, best at 8300. Jesse. Uh, well, I have a podcast that's entirely devoted to time travel called Recorded Tomorrow. You can see it wherever you get normal podcasts, and you can find us on Twitter at Time Travel Pod. The section The Men by the Lake was read by Alistair Stewart of EscapeArtists.net. And Maya. You can find me on Twitter at Maya Santandrea, and I'm going to take this opportunity since everybody has seen Endgame to do a hard push on Doom Patrol. I've caught up with the most recent episodes, um, some of which I have personally been in. This is actually one of DC's great shows that I hope more people will get a chance to watch. I know the DC streaming app is not the most accessible thing for a lot of people, but the show is like almost 100% Grant Morrison, which, quite frankly, is shocking that they were able to take so much of his weirdness and put it on a TV show like this. But it's really, really good, and there are some wonderful character and wonderful emotional moments. It's very inclusive and strange. It's for the weirdos out there, and it's like, it's this is the good version of The Suicide Squad, basically. So please, if you can, check out Doom Patrol. It's really great. Speaking of strange, we haven't actually explained, if for folks who've only just tuned in, who the hell you were in Endgame. So uh, who should people watch <laughs> out for next time they see it, Maya? I'm part of the, the sorcerers that kind of come through the portals in, in that big reveal moment. So it's kind of part of Doctor Strange's crew. It's one of those, like, blink and you miss it scenes, but I'm in there somewhere in that big charge when everybody comes through the portals um and the whole process of that was really cool uh it was obviously great to be in that scene but also just on a personal note it was that job came at the end of a very trying year for me both personally and career-wise so to have that to sort of end the year for me was was really nice and uh yeah, I, I can't say I can't say enough good things about the experience of being on this show. As much as the end result I had some problems with, working on that was was a great high in my career. So it was it was something really special, and I, it, the, that whole experience will always mean something to me. It'll always be special to me. It's just about time for me to go through a couple of things that I absolutely adored about this film. I will probably never be able to say everything, but we gave you a taste. Carol's codename, which I deliberately didn't mention in our Captain Marvel show, of Avenger. I've always had a problem with the fact that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby called this team the Avengers way, way back in 1963. They should have been called the Defenders or the Protectors. And they got their name from Carol, and at the beginning of this movie... They get to be Avengers. They go, they find Thanos, they cut his fucking head off, and that's it. 
They don't change anything. They avenged. And it was the most hollow of victories. And then there's the music. Alan Silvestri is on fire for this one. And he actually started working in other scores from previous Marvels in a way I've always hoped they'd start doing more. And I definitely want to see this in the future. Captain America was there because Sylvester is obviously very proud of that work. But when Scott first turns up, you get the first few bars of Ant-Man by Christoph Beck. Then when the Ancient One turns up, you get some Doctor Strange by Michael Giacchino. Then when Carol turns up at the very end and blasts apart that giant spaceship, you get the Captain Marvel theme by Pinard Toprak. I love that the end credits have the little signatures from the original six Avengers. I can only think of one other movie that's done this and for the exact same reason, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, where the old crew is handing over to the new crew and they're signing the moment. The actors are artists and they are signing their art for us. There's a real respect and a magnificence about that. Because the Russo brothers worked on Community, we got Ken Jeong and Yvette Nicole Brown joining Danny Pudi and Donald Glover in the MCU. Jeff Winger still just in Spider-Man 2. The time jumping, I mean, we talk about the time travel in our extended show, but just the sheer joyful mechanics of the Back to the Future 2 going back to that original movie like it's a space and running around inside it, as well as being a victory lap, as well as being nostalgic, it makes them feel more like they actually happened, all in the same timeline. And as dire as all of these circumstances were, and as horrible as the end of Infinity War was, Act 2 of this movie is really funny and inventive and playful without somehow becoming ridiculous. The bit in the elevator with Sitwell and Rumlow, who were fantastic to see back even briefly. And I could feel everyone in the audience recognize the elevator scene from Winter Soldier, and then they defied expectations and went the other way. They did that repeatedly in this film. One of my most mourned losses, Tom Hiddleston's Loki. We got to see him several times in this, and who I assume is the quantum-leaping Loki grabbing the Tesseract and rushing off into the universe. I did not expect to see Tilda Swinton back as the Ancient One. It was wonderful to see her so sure of herself and then taken aback. I love my mentors human and able to be surprised. There was artful use of file footage of Natalie Portman playing Jane, so seamlessly integrated that it felt like part of the film. I doubt many people noticed at all. Rene Russo as Frigga. Alan Silvestri incorporated the Nordic fiddles of Mark Mothersborough's Thor Ragnarok score. Did not expect to see her and immediately joined Thor in this bittersweet collision of feeling. And she entered back into the part with Gusto, delivering the best scene of Frigga that we will probably ever see. I'm in agreement with most of my guests that Fat Thor was way over the line in terms of how many spiteful jokes were thrown at him, whilst at the same time feeling thoroughly engaged by Chris Hemsworth's crushed, vulnerable, panicking, emotionally tumultuous performance. We've seen people grieving and reduced to a shell. We've seen people furious and angry and just these arbiters of destruction. But to see a young man unsure of what he's feeling, but feeling it incredibly intensely, and that feeling faintly ridiculous, but at the same time entirely sympathetic, we need that. And we need to see more strong young men with their mothers not having to be so blunt. Speaking of family, Morgan Stark, wonderful, charming little actress. She's played by Alexandra Rachel Rabe. She has her father's boldness. And never once did I feel, this is not the issue of Tony Stark. And if you remember in Infinity War, 
Tony tells Pepper that he had a dream that they had a child named Morgan, named after Pot's eccentric uncle. And there was going to be a scene where a teenage version of her turns up just as Tony clicks his fingers at the end, mirroring Thanos with his stolen daughter Gamora in Infinity War. But they decided that that was just one metaphysical layer too many and it just needed to be boiled down to a very simple scene between Downey and Paltrow, the two that started this. Yeah, if I were Iron Man, I'd have this girlfriend who knew my true identity. She'd be a wreck. She'd always be worrying that I was going to die and sort of proud. The man I'd become, she'd be wildly conflicted, which would only make her more <clears throat> crazy about me. It was wonderful to see Pepper back. She maintained a cohesive character throughout 11 years worth of on and off appearances. It was sheer joy to see her at the end as rescue in her iron suit. This was something I've been waiting for since Iron Man 3 or 2, frankly. And I've never been in any doubt that this is a strong, forthright, capable, wildly intelligent woman who can get on all right without Tony. But her connection still felt real, still felt authentic. And I think it was that authenticity that grabbed people all those years ago. That's the secret. The not being embarrassed by the comic book characters you're dealing with, but more importantly, the casting of these amazing actors and getting them to find something in these characters that feels like they're unlocking something for us on screen. And the Pepper and Tony dynamic is going to be something that never leaves me. But also, their final shot of Peggy and Steve, while I predicted his end, that he would wind up going back to the past and that the past would somehow become the future, the elegance of this being the final shot, this simple reuniting between two saddened people, brave enough to just carry on without the other, a life in the military demands a certain amount of detachment, particularly from a woman. Sometimes it is, it's necessary to give and to receive orders without dwelling on the cost of the individual. The, the mission trumps all. The mission, in this case, is now complete.
once, then kiss me twice, then kiss me once again. It's been a long, long time. Haven't felt like this, my dear, since can't remember when. It's been a long, long time. You'll never know how many dreams I dreamed about you, or just how empty they all seemed without you. So kiss me once, then kiss me twice. Kiss me once again. It's been a long.